Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Anities, and along with me is my co-host, Josh Molina. Josh, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, Phil. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. I'm looking forward to getting into this into this show. I It's a better show than the Playboy Mansion show, so it's going to be more fun to go through just on the basis of that. But uh, if you're ready, let, let's go ahead and dive yeah. in. Yeah, you know, I'm not really a big fan of these one-night tournaments. We've talked about my, I guess, my pride ignorance in the past, but I was not really looking forward to this. It kind of reminded me of Atlantic City and having to hear pomp and circumstance four times, <laughs> finally before the Macho Man, you know, wins the title. But I have to say that, um, you know, th- it was this was a fun show, and we'll, we'll, we'll get into it. You know, I think anytime you, the guy's got to make the walk twice, the second time, uh, it's not as exciting as the first time, whether you're in the crowd or you're watching. But, you know, this is only four... T- Four guys, two times, and way better show than the Playboy Mansion show. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I the the one night tournament thing. I I enjoy that more with MMA than I do for pro wrestling for sure. Because to me, you know, probably a third to half of it is the uh, the entrance. You know, <laughs> um, so when you have to hear it four times in one night, yeah, not as much of a fan. But being that. This is MMA and the the walkout is not as big of a deal. Um, It's not as big of a deal to me. I tend to enjoy them. The only issue I have with them is that they're so often that uh, someone gets injured and, and, you know, you end up with a messed up tournament where it's, you know, the guy wins the first fight and then he can't continue. It's just so common with these. And I think that's partially why we don't see him very much anymore, but yeah, I definitely hear you. And and like I said, in in agreement with you, this is a, a much better show than the Playboy Mansion show, but Let's talk about uh, the news and the info coming out of that event. Adam Smith, who had lost to Dewey Cooper, as we discussed at the end of our last episode, he tested positive, or the, the end of our last event episode, he tested positive for pot, cocaine, and steroids and was suspended and fined. So, yeah, uh, which that explains why he looked so big to me when he was in the cage and just kind of looked more like a bodybuilder that was maybe on something, and that's why. In addition, Bill Mahood, who had lost to Bobby Southworth, had tested positive for a steroid. In a post-event article from MMA Weekly, Mahood actually took responsibility and he apologized, which is usually pretty rare. They usually try to say, I didn't, you know, I didn't know that I was or whatever. But he said, quote, I did, in fact, start using the anabolic agent approximately the third week in August. This was at a time that I thought I was done fighting and was suffering from a chronic joint inflammation of my hip, end quote. Uh, He went on to say that injuries would likely prevent him from continuing his career, but he would take some time off and he actually ended up fighting several more times. In fact, if memory serves, I think he went on a five-fight win streak after this to close out his career. So, well, that excuse, or, or that's not excuse. That honesty is a lot better than saying he ate some tainted meat in Mexico, um, or you know, he oh, got who a- was that? <laughs> who was who was that? It was a boxer, right? Um, we've had MMA guys say that before. Um, yeah. I think it's pretty fairly common, you know, a tainted supplement, but, oh, I know who it was. No, 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 it, no. It was, the tainted uh, meat, no, the tainted meat thing, that's, I think that's fairly unique. Yeah, you're right. Um, I, uh, I'm going to remember before we're done here. Okay. I don't remember. Okay. It was or a fighter. Want- it was, yeah, I'll just go on, you know, look it up, but yeah, I mean, great honesty. Chael Sonnen had some honesty too, you know? Yeah. And, <laughs> and so, so you can respect that a little bit. I, I have much more respect for it when guys actually come clean. I think everybody does. Uh, but, you know, in this case, he really very much took responsibility for it. Um, he, he said that, and by the way, he said also in that interview that he thought the, number one, he didn't think that the 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 anabolic agent had anything to do with his performance. 
And he also said that he would not, uh, he didn't think that its effect would still, like it wouldn't still be in his blood by the time they fought. So for what it's worth, he added that in there as well. Canelo Alvarez. Yes, yes, Canelo. Yes, Yes. that's right. He said, uh, he's a Mexican boxer. He said that he had uh, eaten eaten some tainted meat in Mexico that had caused him to to test poorly. (laughs) So, or uh, negative, or positive. We believe you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Also at the event, we saw Strikeforce mainstays Gilbert Melendez, Josh Thompson, and uh, we, the aforementioned Southworth and Luke Stewart come away with relatively easy wins. Uh, it was Melendez's first time in the Strikeforce hexagon in 15 months. So now the question became, would we see him back again quickly enough to defend that lightweight belt? It'd been on the, on the shelf alongside him for 15 months. So would he be back soon in a post-fight interview? With MMA Weekly, uh, he said that he would be ready to get back in the cage soon, that he was dealing with an injured hand, but he thought he'd be okay, and it turned out to not be broken. So, uh, And he welcomed a fight with Josh Thompson. And Thompson now had six straight wins, including five in strike force. When would he get another title shot? Uh, he was clearly gunning for that. And then Southworth, you know, would he get a chance to have a non-weird strike force fight, as we talked about on our last event episode you know, he had had the, the, you know, the, the Sandman fight where the, the cage door flew open, no contest in 17 seconds. Then he has this uh, really widely panned fight title fight with Vernon Tiger white, where he did all he could, but, and, and clearly one of the five round fight, but just, you know, not a, not a win that you really want. And then now he's got the minute 15 win over bill, the butcher Mahood in a non-title fight where the, where Mahood, you know, injured his ribs and then test positive afterwards. So you know, poor guy, you know, you got to, you got to kind of feel for Southworth. So, uh, but we would, we would get an answer pretty quickly because he would actually be fighting on the, the event that we're going to talk about today. Yeah. Uh, then we also saw George Masvidal, Jorge Masvidal also made a very strong showing in his fight with Matt Lee. Technically Masvidal was signed with Bodog, but he would never fight for that promotion again. And we would see him back in strike force soon. So we'll be talking more about him. Uh, we also saw 24 year old Joe Riggs, Joe Diesel Riggs, fresh off an eventful run in the UFC, makes a statement in his win over Eugene Jackson, sending him into retirement. Uh, looked like Strike Strike Force had a, had a new star on its hands, and a young guy, 24, but had uh, I think he was 27 and eight now. So incredible amount of fights, 35 fights for a 24 year old. Almost as so, many fights as Josh Thompson had on the last yeah show. yeah thir- who was apparently 34 and two. I, again, don't know where that came from. Uh, there would be, and by the way, on the card we're going to discuss today, there's more more fun with facts, as as maybe we should start calling that, uh, as far as records go, which we'll get into in just a little bit. Also announced at the the Playboy Mansion show on the air, it was revealed that Hanato Babalu Sobral, former UFC fighter, had signed uh, with Strikeforce, and this was a very solid signing to the for the uh, the Strikeforce light heavyweight division, which was which was really among the weakest in the promotion. Uh, and in an October interview with MMA Weekly, Babalu pointed out. Uh, that he was looking forward to a future title fight with Southworth. And it also covered Sobral's release from the UFC after his controversial submission went over David Heath. I think it was UFC 74, if memory serves, uh, in, in which Babalu held onto the choke after the tap. Very bloody. Uh, it was a very bloodied fight. Uh, but he held onto the choke, and the referee was trying to pull Babalu off. And he wouldn't let go, and he said he was trying to teach Heath a lesson for calling him an MFer. Uh, it was a very crazy moment. Uh, Josh, i got to ask, do you remember that? Do you, do you remember seeing that? I don't think I've seen that. I, I, I'm gonna have to watch it. Was yeah, it you, was you it out of line? I, I'm sure it is, and if not, it's on it's on Fight Pass, UFC Fight Pass for sure. But I want to say it's an anaconda choke, and he gets him down, and and just like blood soaked, and uh, the referee, you know, he 
Heath goes out and the referee tries to pull uh, Mas, uh, Mas sorry, <laughs> tries to pull tries to pull Babalu off him, and and Sobral does not want to let go. And afterwards, in the cage, when he gets interviewed, and and Rogan asks him about it, he says, you know, he called me a meffer, and that's why he did that. So just you know, <laughs> kind of thin skinned, I think, and and he got fined and and released and all that stuff. So yeah, Dana, uh, got, yeah, go ahead. Dana White did not have any patience for guys who did that. I mean, oh, and, obviously and I wouldn't either. I would not either. I totally unprofessional. And, and at this time, of course, in the UFC, they're doing everything they can to be accepted in exactly. the mainstream. And you, you can't have anything that doesn't look unsportsmanlike. Who was the guy who had the reputation for not breaking the submission, the leg oh. locks, P- oh. Panides or something, or um, say it again, Panides or, or something no. like that. Um, no, I know exactly. I've got him. I've got his picture. He was known for leg locks. He was known and, for leg locks and holding them on over yeah, and over. I've, yeah, I've got his. He's super muscular. I've got his. I'm like I literally am picturing him in, in my mind right now, and I cannot think of his name. And he ended up getting released, and then he went over to the World Series of Fighting promotion and had a, a, a similar experience. And um, yeah, just and it was like he never seemed to be doing it on purpose. Uh, you know, it was never. It never seemed to be something where he was trying to, you know, do something. But, um, yeah, he, oh, Paul Harris. Who's Samar Paul Harris? Yep, I just remembered his name. Okay, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, he was known for holding on to these these leg locks and, and holding Paul them Harris, on, yeah. hold on to for them for too long. And, it's again, it didn't seem like it was something that he was doing out of malice. But just as a professional, you can't do that stuff. You cannot do that stuff. And it doesn't matter how established the UFC is or MMA is as, as a sport – it just, it, you can't do that. You're playing with people's lives with their livelihood. And I mean, Soberall could have killed that guy if he'd held on too, too long, you know? So it, it's not, it's not okay. And, and Coker taught, was interviewed and asked about it. And he's about signing Babalu after doing that. And he said, you know, everybody deserves a second chance. And I, I agree. I, I get that. And I don't believe, I don't think Sobral ever did that again. I don't think it, I don't think it ever happened again in his career. So, you know, and you we're going to see on this card we're talking about, we're going to see a couple of uh, late blows yep. um, that, to me, were sort of unsportsmanlike too. So yep, and we'll and we'll uh, get to the we'll, yeah. we'll get to those for sure. Uh, but to wrap things up on the Playboy Mansion show, we also had Frank Shamrock's controversial comment on commentary about the alleged sexual orientation of Josh Punk Thompson, uh, where he basically said he was the first openly gay fighter, which you know got a, a response from Thompson once he learned about it, and and even on the air, kind of a kind of a slap on the wrist for Shamrock from his broadcast partner, Brian Weber. So not, not a good look at all as we discussed. And we go into that in depth in our last uh, event episode, the, the Playboy Mansion show one. So uh, it elevated a feud, as I, as I mentioned, between two fighters in very different weight classes. So, which I, I just think is a waste of time. It's the pro wrestling equivalent would be having a feud with a referee. You know, you're just, you're not going to see them fight. They're just way uh, Shamrock just weighed way more than, than Thompson did. Thompson would walk around at, you know, maybe 180 pounds and Frank Shamrock was cutting weight to get down to 185. So it just, it would have been a total mismatch weight wise. And yeah, Josh said he was willing to fight Frank and all that stuff, but no athletic commission outside of Japan would have, you know, or should have approved it. So anyways, all right, well, let's get to the event that we're actually discussing. So this would be the first time that Strikeforce would hold major events consecutively without a three-month break in between. So they were starting to up their activity level. Uh, the Playboy Mansion show took place on September 29, 2007. And this event that we're going to discuss tonight 
uh, would happen on November 16th. It was titled Four Men Enter, One Man Survives, which has got to be my least favorite Strike Force uh, event title. Uh, it's just, just, just from the perspective of I had to write this out, and I just ended up, we were going to essentially call it Four Men Enter tonight, but I'm just not a fan of these huge, you know, these six word, you know, subtitled events. Not, you know, not a big fan of that. That's like a lead. I mean, that's like a journalism yeah. lead. You <laughs> yeah, know, it's, yeah. it's it's not a name of a show. I mean, couldn't no. they have called it like Battle Bowl? Like they needed like a hammerhead headline, you know, like that's yeah. like the sub, that's the tagline, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, not, not a big fan of that. Uh, but <laughs> the event should feature the first ever sanctioned MMA tournament in California. And the combatants were announced to be George Santiago, Trevor Prangley, Yuki Sasaki, and Falonico Vitale. A couple familiar names, two uh, Strike Force veterans there, and and then uh, a couple other guys that we're going to get to. Let me ask this you this. Was, Let me ask sure. you this. Okay. Sure. Why are we doing a tournament? Like, like what is the – these four guys, by the way, I know that there was some uh, backstory to why some of them are in there. But, I mean, these are not big names. It's not like the heavyweight Grand Prix in Strike Force later on. Um, do we know why Scott Coker was doing this sort of tournament? Was it just kind of a throwback to, yeah. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. It was essentially a throwback of sorts to kind of the original UFC events. And then of course, probably more, you know, it's been established that Coker had a good relationship with the the pride fighting guys. And, and, you know, he, they were very famous for doing their grand Prix events. And, and so I think he was looking to differentiate himself and he talked in an interview about just basically doing something different. And, um, you know, he had to work extensively with with the California State Athletic Commission to get the tournament approved. And they insisted on a lottery system where the fight pairings wouldn't be determined until the weigh-ins the night before the event, which I do not understand that at all, because to me, that seems more dangerous. But uh, I think he was just, you know, or based on the interview I read with him, it seemed to be more along the lines of him looking to do something a little bit different. And it was different. I mean, the, the UFC wasn't doing these one night tournaments anymore and and probably as we've already discussed for good reason due to injuries and other things that where they end up not being as advertised. And even this tournament would not end up being as advertised. So and again, we'll get into that. Uh, they did, uh, you know, it was smart to do this, but they had a reserve bout scheduled where the winner would enter the tournament. If one of the first round winners was unable to continue. And that bout was scheduled to be uh, Sean Salmon versus Dennis Hallman. And then based on the, what I was reading ar around this time, it seemed like most considered Prangley to be the favorite um, but, uh, but yeah, that would, he, you know, that would be, well, we'll get into that. <laughs> uh, then on October 25th, a, a big announcement, it was revealed that Paul Buentello, the headhunter and Alistair Overeem, the demolition man would lock horns, uh, at this event to become the, the, with the winner becoming the first ever strike force heavyweight champion. So that's a big announcement. And Alistair's coming back after, uh, fighting on the second ever strike force card revenge in a pretty lackluster light heavyweight fight with Vitor Belfort. And now he's coming back to, to make good. And then of course the headhunter Paul Buentello, who had ripped off several wins uh, with strike force, you know, now he's back and, and now he's got a, a shot at the heavyweight belt and become the first champion. So that's a pretty big announcement. Uh, and then on October 30th, what I would consider to be a not so big announcement on the, from a national MMA perspective, <laughs> undefeated kickboxer, Brian Schwartz was announced as being added to the card. Uh, he would be taking on Lamont Davis, a fellow striker, and it would end up being on the main card, which is kind of an interesting uh, decision since these were this would be the MMA debut for both of them. Uh, Schwartz, I actually he was a local local star a kickboxer. I remember his name. I want to say he fought on the last Strike Force kickboxing card that I was which I attended. So I know he was a big local star. 
but but kind of a, a curious decision to put him on the main card without you know putting him on the undercard, especially if he's going to be drawing more you know more more ticket sell more ticket buyers locally uh, versus you know again on a national scene or on a national scale he's not known. So kind of an interesting decision. Uh, and then in a late addition to the card, Kung Lee was announced to be returning to the hexagon. He would be facing Ultimate Fighter veteran Sammy Morgan in a feature bout. Uh, and then one last little note, if you look at the fight poster for this, uh, or the event poster, for what it's worth, Joe Diesel Riggs' name was featured on that, but but he did not co- end up competing, which is, you know, as we all know, is pretty un- pretty common in MMA to have guys, you know, revealed. But, I, you know, to me, I'm not putting a fight poster out with, you know, with fighters on there unless it's for sure that they're going to be fighting. But anyways... All right, we as, as we like to also discuss the uh, the UFC events that are going on around this time, and and so we do have one that we want to want to spotlight here. We and before we jump into that, we also want to mention the UFC champions at the time of the event. No changes from the last Strike Force event, the same champion. So Sean Shirk still your lightweight champion. Matt er- Matt Sarah still the welterweight champion. Anderson Silva uh, still in the first year of his seven year reign uh, over the middleweight division. Quentin Rampage Jackson. Uh, was uh, was still the light heavyweight champion, and Randy Couture, the the natural, was still uh, the the heavyweight champion. So the closest I, UFC... I, I just Randy Couture is heavyweight champion. I mean, yeah, I, it, didn't I just, la- it didn't last very long, but it that was that that was interesting for sure. And then Brock Lesnar gets to become heavyweight oh, champion. Man. I mean, like. Could you make it any easier for Brock Lesnar? I yeah, mean, I, I mean, obviously, no offense to to Randy, but you know, he was a blown up light heavyweight. So yeah, yeah it was not a heavyweight. Were, it, to me, it's similar to GSP coming back to fight uh, Michael Bisping. I mean, no no disrespect to Mister Bisping, but you know, GSP had to be licking his chops. He didn't have to cut a bunch of weight and you know take on a guy that he knew he could beat. So yeah, kind of kind of a similar situation in my in my my view. And Randy, one of my favorite fighters. I mean, I absolutely love Randy. Couture, so no no disrespect there but uh but yeah uh but the closest event to the to the event that we're talking about tonight ufc 78 validation was actually officially the 100th event in the history of the ufc it took place at the prudential center uh in newark new jersey on november 17 2007 one day after four men enter taylor alves became only the second fighter to stop chris lights out lytle after uh, our previous uh podcast guest joe diesel riggs uh, was uh, was the first man to stop him. And then Frankie Edgar shut out Spencer Fisher on the scorecards. Another UFC fighter that is still active, Ed Herman, knocked out Joe Dirksen. And Tiago Silva TKO'd Houston Alexander in the co-main event. And then in the main event, man that we just discussed, Michael Bisping lost a split decision to Rashad Evans. And this event was was successful, very much so. Financially drew 14,071 fans for a gate of $2.1 million dollars while pay-per-view buys numbered around 400,000. All right, here we go. Strike Force, four men enter, one man survives, would take place at the HP Pavilion in San Jose, California on November 16th, 2007. The event would draw 2,000, or I'm sorry, 7,249 fans and would be streamed on Yahoo Sports, just as the Playboy Mansion show was. No mention of 500 million people tuning in <laughs> to this event as we heard with the Playboy Mansion show. Uh, but I, I did want to point out, I really loved the uh, the stage stage setup for this event. Very professional looking, especially in comparison uh, to the Playboy Mansion show. Yeah, it had kind of like a 
kind of a pyramid of, of screens and, you know, smoke and lights. And they would do that. You know, they did that at other events, but for whatever reason, it really stood out to me. I mean, you know, the, the strike force promotion was so familiar with HP pavilion. So they knew how to dress it up and make it look good. And, and they definitely did so with, with this event. Yeah. It's interesting that I guess we're taking a break from the elite XC partnership at this time. Yeah. Uh, no mention, no mention you know, of that. It's, it's, I just remember as a, a viewer, you're sort of like, well, what happened to that other crew? And why is it this announced team now? And where did Jimmy Lennon Jr. go? And it's just, we're seeing them sort of figure things out a little bit and some kind of settling in into what the show's going to look like. I do have to say, you know, you mentioned the stage. The sound was incredible for this show. Uh, you could hear the cheers. Uh, it was almost like the they had this uh, audience mic'd or the seats mic'd. But you could hear later them shouting Kung Lee, uh, the back and forth uh, with the various punches and some of the fights and kicks. I mean, it was really loud. Um, I don't recall it feeling or hearing it that, like that before. So this definitely had good production value. Yeah, it was uh, the standout event from a, yeah, just a, a, a viewing and an audio, audio experience. I, I think it was, I think it was really good. So uh, the commentators for this event would once again be Brian Web Weber and Frank Shamrock. We'll see if this was uh, this would end up being a better outing than their last one together. All right, jumping into the event. Uh, but before we do, we do I do want to mention before we get into the event results, there was a big change to the card. Uh, despite weighing in, Pride veteran Yuki Sasaki was not cleared to fight. He had an abnormal MRI test, which led the doctor to recommending against him competing. In his place stepped Sean Salmon. I don't know why Salmon was chosen over Hallman. Uh, I don't know what the thought process was in that, if there was a coin flip or anything like that, but whatever the reason, Sean Salmon would end up stepping in and paying dearly for it, uh, <laughs> while Jeremiah Metcalf would now face Dennis Hallman in the reserve bout. Uh, also, tournament bouts would only be two rounds each if needed. Uh, and then one more note I want to mention is that we could not find video of the first four fights, so we'll be going off descriptions of the action live uh, from MMAJunkie.com. All right, so that first of, that first fight, 185 pounds. Uh, this is the reserve bout for the uh, the middleweight tournament that we're seeing tonight. Dennis Superman Hallman defeats Jeremiah Metcalf by submission via heel hook at 139 in the first round. Huge experience difference in this fight. Hallman was 45, 12, and two coming in, while Metcalf was five and four. So I'm a little surprised that uh, the CSAC would would license this, but they did. Uh, Superman had made his de MMA debut all the way back in 1996, and he had actually handed Matt Hughes his first loss in 1998 and then gave him his second career loss when he beat him again in 2000 in the UFC debut for Hallman. So pretty impressive. Both those wins came in in under a minute each. So talent was never a question with Hallman, and, and neither was his willingness to scrap. Uh, Metcalf's name might ring a bell. He had made his strike force debut at tank versus Buntello the previous year, losing to Luke Stewart via first round rear naked choke. Since then he'd won three of his last four, but had been knocked out in his last bout. And this would be a huge test for him, especially on such short notice, but this would not go very long. Uh, Hallman got a guillotine on early, which eventually Metcalf slammed his way out of, uh, they exchanged some strikes and then Hallman grabs another guillotine. And then in a scramble, Superman grabs a heel hook and cranks it, getting the, the tap out win. So Metcalf didn't get much of a chance to show uh, much of his skill set as he was simply overwhelmed by the much more experienced Hallman. Uh, he would, however, earn three straight wins after this bout, which would garner him another shot in strike force. 
Hallman would be back for a challenger uh, challengers event a year and a half after this show. And he garnered a, a quick submission win over Justin Davis there. And that would be it for him in strike force. He later returned to the UFC for another run with pretty mixed results and ended his fighting career in 2015 on a six fight losing streak. Uh, but he'll always be remembered for his two wins over Matt Hughes, as well as wearing those little tiny itty, itty bitty teeny weeny training mask briefs uh, that we, I believe we discussed on a previous show. Uh, I, 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 Josh, did we talk about that? Do you, do you remember that? Yeah, we did talk about that. And I mean, he was, uh, he was the guy Dana White sort of freaked out about, right? Yeah, and, that's right. That's right. He, he was, he, I, yeah, that's right. He found, I found an interview where he, Dana was not happy about that at all, but obviously a world-class, you know, submission fighter. And, and let me, just let me ask you about, can, I mean, sure. I know we got plenty to talk about here, but. What's what's the problem, right? Like, why why is that setting Dana White off so much? Uh, is, is that I mean, what guys should only wear the trunks? Um, it's just not traditional. It's distracting. Oh, uh, this is coming from a guy that was pointing out that Daniel Pewter wore, you know, <laughs> briefs that looked like Finn Balor's. I mean, these the ones that Hallman wore. You know, he's got his sponsor on the crotch, and they're like you know swim trunks or not swim trunks. These are like you know, professional swimmers trunks, you know, the little skimpy speedo things. No, no, no. I know. I saw them and I remember it was like a big talk of MMA for a long time. It was very funny, but I mean, I just wonder if there's a like actual reason why you don't want to wear those other than aesthetically, it's not really what the MMA audience probably wants to see. Um, but I wonder if just aesthetically, it's just more dangerous or, or what, you know? I, I mean, I'm completely speculating, but my guess was, would be that it's just not a good look for the sport. It, you know, that this is, you know, we're trying remember this is, these were, this is not far from the days where guys were, and maybe that was still going on at this point where guys would be writing, you know, condomdepot.com on their back in black ink as a, you know, as a sponsorship opportunity, you know, it's just not a good look, you know, for the sport whatsoever. And, and so him wearing those little briefs, was kind of a look at me type thing. And, and, you know, and this, again, all speculation. So I, I don't know 100% for sure, but Dana was absolutely livid. He did not have a sense of humor when it came to that at all and, and was not happy about it. You know, maybe just on a better night, you know, if he'd been in a better mood, you know, I, I don't know what completely what his thoughts were, but to me, he's trying to make light of things. And, and I just, I wasn't a fan of it. I didn't, I didn't like it. And I didn't blame Dana for getting, getting fired up about it. So uh, if you disagree, fill it inside the hexagon.com or uh, tweet us or, or hit us up on Instagram at inside the hexagon pod or hexagon at hexagon pod on Twitter. Let me know what you think. But yeah, if you don't remember that uh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll tweet out a, uh, you know, an image of that and you can see what I'm talking about in case you don't, but yeah. <laughs> All right. Moving on in 145 pound fight, Chris drum took on Evan Esquera in a, which ended in a technical draw. This was a weird one. Uh, it would be the MMA debut for drum while Esquera was one to know having won his MMA debut the previous month at a California regional event. Uh, in the action drum actually almost got a rear naked choke win in the second round, but Esquera escaped. Unfortunately, he accidentally hit drum in the back of the head and that was it. Drum just could not continue. And the, and the fight was ruled a technical draw. I assume again, we couldn't, we don't have fight video of this, but I assume that the referee deemed it to be accidental. And so he didn't want to penalize Esquera. And so 
he ends up calling it a, a draw instead. Um, and, and, but that was it. And that's actually it for drums MMA career. We never competed in the sport again, while Esquera would come back to strike force for young guns Two, a challenger's card in February of 2008, losing to Alvin Kakdak due to strikes. Uh, he would go on to fight a bunch more times, ending his career in 2013 with an eight, six and one record. All right, moving on 155 pound fight. Alex Crispin defeats Clint Cornell by unanimous decision. Short turnaround for Cornell. He had actually, he'd lost possibly the fight of the night at the Playboy Mansion show in a mostly stand-up battle with Billy Evangelista or Evangelista, as we discussed on that episode. Uh, he was two and three coming into this fight. Crispin was two and one coming in. He had a loss in common with Cornell and he, as he had also gone down in to, in defeat to Evangelista earlier that year. Uh, this is a pretty back and forth fight based on uh, the description. Crispin got some good takedowns in the first couple of rounds and, and got some, some good damage in. And then in the third round, things opened up a bit more and it sounds like Cornell won the last round, but it wasn't enough. And Crispin got the name, the, the, I'm sorry, the decision win. Uh, Cornell would fight one more time in MMA in March of 2008, going out on a loss to end his career at two and five. Uh, meanwhile, Crispin would be back in strike force two years after this fight. So we'll be discussing him more in the future. All right. A very familiar name. Anthony ant dog Figueroa is back and he takes on Pete Sabala and wins by split decision in a bantamweight bout. Uh, Figueroa was coming off an impressive TKO win over Miguel Linares at the playboy mansion show, running his record to three and one Sabala had a record of three and four coming into this, uh, the, into this fight, which would be a strike force debut. And interestingly, he had a loss to Linares on his record, uh, who we just mentioned. Uh, and it's worth, you know, let's, let's mention also that at this point, you know, we're seeing a lot of crossover as I'm doing the research on these fights there just weren't a ton of 135 pounders out there. The UFC wasn't doing 135 pound fights yet. I mean, you had the WEC obviously, which is really, that was the show when it came to those uh, that, that weren't uh, in, you know, the lightweight class or above. And even in the lightweight class, obviously some of the very best in the sport, but at this point, yeah, there was no national show for these Bantamweights. So uh, there probably weren't a ton of them fighting. And so they ended up fighting each other a lot, especially if they were California based. So that's probably why we see a lot of crossover in their in their records. But uh, as we mentioned, um, this was uh, this would be the uh, the Strike Force debut for Zabala and Figueroa was back. Very entertaining first round. I did get to watch this one. Um, both fighters. Oh no, I'm sorry, I did not get to watch this one. This was again going off the description. Both fighters got slams on their opponents in the first round. Ant Dog really distinguished himself on the feet, scoring some points there. Then in the second, Sabala gets a big slam, works some strikes on the ground, earning the round. Uh, and then in the third, Figueroa actually stunned Sabala with a, a good punch, but it wasn't he wasn't able to finish. Sabala reversed things and got top position before going for a guillotine. Figueroa escapes, and that's how things end. Very close fight based on what I read. It could have gone either way, uh, but Antog is the one that gets his hand raised at the end. Uh, Antog really figure out making a, a big name for himself at Bantamweight and he would be back in the strike force hexagon in early 2008. Unfortunately for his opponent, Sabala would not be back in strike force and even more unfortunate, this loss would actually be the second out of what it would end up being 10 in a row. And he would actually only win one more fight in his career, which ended in 2012 with him sporting a record of four and 15. So, uh, not, not a great career for Sabala, but hats off to him for continuing to get back in the cage. Next fight, this well, we did find video of this, and this is, I believe, this is the last fight that we, uh, or I believe the previous fight was the last one we did not have video for. So the rest of these were going off of us actually watching them. But in a middleweight bout, Eric Lawson uh, would defeat Josh Neal by submission, rear naked choke at 20 seconds of the second round. This was a very enjoyable fight. 
Uh, Lawson, a four-time Gladiator Challenge competitor at the time, was 3-1 and one as he entered the hexagon to face Neil. Neil, for his part, was 2-1, and one, uh, and this would be the Strike Force debut for both. So early on in the first round, Lawson gets an early takedown, which Neil turns into a very tight triangle choke. I mean, it was very tight. Lawson slams and punches through the remainder of the round, and Neil never gave up the triangle. And Lawson came as close to tapping without actually tapping as I think I've ever seen. I mean, one of the commentators actually said, like, I think he tapped, uh, which was pretty <laughs> pretty crazy. So, yeah. Um, and I also mentioned the, this fight, was not on. I was able to find a link that had all of the main card. This fight was put up on YouTube by Bodog, which it was like Bodog presents uh, Strike Force, and that's why. I mean, we actually have some Bodog fighters on the last card. We had some Bodog fighters on this card. Trevor Prangley was the Bodog middleweight champion, so they actually, I guess, maybe the maybe the 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 the, the sorry the undercard was Bodog and streamed by them. I don't know, but they had their own commentators whose voices I didn't recognize that actually covered this fight, which was kind of interesting. So that's actually how I got to see it was just kind of getting lucky on YouTube. Uh, but yeah, I've never seen a fighter hold onto a triangle for four minutes before. So pretty, pretty notable first round. Uh, then in the second round, it goes downhill for Neil real quickly. He throws a pretty lazy leg kick to start things off, which Lawson catches and then responds to the right hand to the chin to drop him. Neil is on his back, and Lawson turns him over basically into a rear naked choke, uh, choke earning the tap. Big comeback for Lawson, and this this was an entertaining fight. I, I enjoyed it. It just must be really deflating to be in um, that position where you've got this, the, you know, the guillotine on, or it was the triangle, and – you are so close, so close, and you're given everything you have, and nothing is happening, and and it must be deflating, and then the the, the other guy escapes, and then you know you come out, it's like what am I going to do now, you know, and you just you know, get popped, and then you're turning your back, and you're getting choked out, and that's just you know the way it goes. He must have exerted a ton of energy too. Oh, I'm sure in that, in that previous round, uh, you know, it made me think of pro wrestling when I saw this because. You know, this is the kind of move that a wrestler does, like one of the fake MMA moves. And, yeah. and you're just like, they would never be in an arm bar this long. They would never yeah. be in a guillotine or a triangle but, this but long. But it apparently happens. You know, yeah. apparently it does happen, at least, in you know, in this case. Yeah, I don't remember ever seeing a guy hold on to a uh, a choke for four minutes and not get it, you know. So, and especially how close he got. I mean, he even got lost in basically down on his side which is like all right now you know he's going to tap so do you remember a- the do you remember the Ken Shamrock uh, Kimbo Slice uh uh I guess it was a guillotine attempt do you remember that fight I don't no yeah. I don't you, I'm sure you missed it on purpose probably uh but you know <laughs> uh Shamrock had that thing sunk in and it was like I don't know what you're doing Ken but like nothing's happening it was it was almost like Ken was just too weak to squeeze, but he had, he had Kimbo perfectly and nothing happened. Then he just let it go. So it's, it's really interesting to see when these guys escape. And then, you know, when you have, when you you have no choice, but to let go, you're like, Oh, you know, it's going to be a turnaround here. Well, we, we actually have something similar happen to what you just described later in this event. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that, but uh, both fighters will be back in strike force multiple times and with good reason, as again, this was a very entertaining fight. You'll be hearing their names more on the show uh, in future episodes. 
All right, well, we are to the main card. And in the first fight, George Santiago, uh, this is the first round of the the middleweight Grand Prix tournament. Uh, George Santiago would knock out Sean Salmon at 28 seconds of the first round. And we're going to spend a few minutes on this because it's so notable. But Santiago uh, came to Strikeforce after a run in the UFC that saw him go one and two with two stoppages by, or basically two stoppage losses in a row. Uh, he was an American top team product. He had righted the ship since leaving the UFC, having submitted Andre Semenov and Jeremy Horn uh, during a, a solid win streak. Santiago held a 14-7 and seven record, and he had faced the likes of Manny Gamburian, Derek Noble, Diego Sanchez, Joey Villasenor, Chris Lieben, and Alan Belcher during his career, although he had lost to all of them. So, I mean, that's one, two, three, four, five, six. That's six of his seven career losses coming to, you know, pretty notable fighters. Uh, so, you know, when he does lose, it's it's to name guys. So that's something. Salmon was 14 and four coming into this bout and had a very, very busy 2007. Uh, he'd competed eight times that year uh, before this event. Uh, however, he'd been on the wrong side of one of the sickest head kick knockouts you will ever see perpetrated on him by Rashad Evans at UFC Fight Night 8. Uh, do you remember that, Josh? Do you remember that 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 head, head kick knockout? I have not seen that one. No. You need to look that one up. It, when I say sick, I'm not saying like awesome. Like I'm saying gross. Like it, it, <laughs> he, it was similar to the Pete Williams, Mark, the hammer Coleman fight where he got, oh. he kind of scooped down and got kicked in the face. Yeah. It was similar to that. And I mean, he just does the whole whole and, you know, falls back and hits his head on the, it's nasty. It is very nasty. So, and that actually just happened earlier that year. Uh, then, then he got choked out by Alan Belcher at UFC 71, which got him his release. Uh, since, since then, however, he'd won five of six, so he'd gone on a good run. Uh, but this one would be over very quickly. The both the the two of them would trade a few strikes to kind of feel out the distance, and then Santiago lands what appears to be a flying knee to the side of the head. And after one follow up punch, referee Cecil Peoples comes. I mean, flying in to stop stop Santiago from further. Follow up and Cecil was uh, was not a young man, so you got to give it to him for. And in fact, the, the commentators said something later because he got in there pretty quick on a, on a later fight, and the rep, the the commentators were giving him his you know giving him his respect for man he must be training or something because he, he he just you know threw himself in there. But <laughs> Salmon was on his back for quite some time before he was strapped to a spine board and carried out. It was actually a pretty scary scene. Uh, but so Josh, I want to ask you about this like. The weird thing about this was that it really was more of a glancing kind of shin shot to the more of the neck than the head. And and Frank Shamrock on commentary said that was his brain shutting itself down to protect him from further punishment. Like I, I it just it looked weird to me. It didn't look like it landed. Uh, it didn't look like it landed. It just point blank. It did not look like it landed. It was not a knee. It was more of a shin to, like I said, kind of the side of the neck. They showed it from multiple angles, and and the one from kind of the left side looks devastating, but that's because you just see Santiago's back and his leg come up and Salmon go out. And I'm not questioning Salmon. I mean, man, they had doctors in there, and you know he he was in obviously in bad shape. But I, I would like to get your your thoughts on it because it just did not look like it was really that big of a deal. But Salmon was was in really really yeah, it's just been a very tough situation right after this. Yeah, well, two things here. One, um, Bigfoot Silva, I noticed, was in Santiago's corner. I did corner. see that. Yeah, American so, top team. I did see yeah, that. That was pretty cool. Um, now, regarding the knee, it looked like a pro wrestling work knee the first time. Like, it looked like that did not land. I mean, it looks kind of good, but it didn't look like it was devastating. 
the guy's head didn't move. I mean, usually when something lands solid, you see the head move, the chin, there's some kind of turn, there's some kind of impact. It almost looked like he landed kind of on the neck area, chin, head, uh, but it, it did, it seemed glancing. And so I was sort of thinking, what, what happened there? Um, did the guy just get hit in a spot and he lost his balance? Now, I looked up, did a little bit of research. Figure Four Weekly under the Wrestling Observer umbrella said that he had a seizure. Really? Um, yeah, it said that he had a seizure in the fight from the blow. Um, he had to be wait, taken. Wait, wait, wait. In, wait, during the fight, or you mean after he took that, he had a seizure like in the uh, in the cage? Oh, sorry, sorry. That blow caused him to have a seizure. I see. And he okay. had a history of seizures. So to someone else, that might be a blow that they shake off or it's not that big of a deal. But it triggered a seizure in Salmon. And uh, that's what that's what we saw in terms of the devastating actor, um, after effects was, you know, he was on the stretcher and everybody was kind of concerned, you know, that it could be something horrible, the worst sort of thing that could happen to him. He obviously ended up being okay, but there was some talk after this because he has this predisposition to seizures that the California State Athletic Commission would revoke his license. Uh, they did not end up doing that, but there was talk about that because obviously you, uh, the last thing MMA needs is a death in the ring. And obviously they're concerned about this guy. If you have a predisposition to seizures, maybe you shouldn't be fighting. Yeah. I, I can't believe they li- they licensed him. If he's got a predisposition to seizures, I mean, that's, that's kind of insane, you know? So I'm, I'm surprised to hear that, but yeah, it was, it was a scary scene, you know, no, no doubt about it. And imagine God, imagine if he had landed the knee, like really, really landed the knee. I mean, he might be dead. Serious. And that's not an exaggeration. I mean, it was, it was there for the taking. It just a game of, of, you know, never mind a game of inches. It was a game of, of millimeters. I mean, it was so close. So yeah, I mean, but either way, very brutal knockout loss for Sean Salmon. Uh, he, you know, he had this very solid 14-4 and record coming in, but things really took a turn after this loss, and you have to wonder if, you know, brain damage is part of it. I, I don't know, but after this event, Salmon wins only four of his last 20 bouts, and he last fought in 2013, leaving MMA on a 12-fight losing streak with a final record of, of 18-21. and So, you know, kind of an unfortunate situation where he goes from a – pretty good record, gets some fights in the UFC and just gets drummed out. And then this, and then, you know, like I said, loses 16 of his last 20 bouts. So yeah, that's it. And obviously we'll be talking more about Santiago in just a a few minutes as he advances to the next round of this tournament. Then in the other opening, uh, opening round bout, uh, Trevor Prangley defeated Falonico Vitale by referee decision after two rounds. And, and that's kind of misleading because it's not a full two rounds. This is, this one has a, another weird ending. Uh, Prangley was 16 and four. He was the Bodoc middleweight champion coming into this fight. So he had to be considered a favorite. He had previously competed in strike force, submitting Anthony Ruiz in a light heavyweight bout, a very, uh, very controversial fight. At Strike Force's Tank versus Buentello event, the big South African was coming off a, a solid stoppage victory over Pride veteran Yuki Kondo, and he was riding a four-fight win streak. Vitaly was 24 and seven. He had just beaten Ron Killing Fields at the Playboy Mansion show, so this was a relatively quick turnaround for the Hawaiian fighter. And that's your favorite. Uh, that's your favorite nickname, right? That's one of them. What Ron Killing? Killing? <laughs> yeah, that's which is the. 
usually I would just say, oh, he won at the last event or maybe like a quit, but I had to put the nickname in there. So yes. <laughs> I, I just think of our truth. That's all I think. <laughs> yeah, run, run the truth killings. Yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> or run our, yeah, our truth killings. Um, but yeah, so anyway, so we get into this. Uh, start of the bout would be de- delayed briefly as they had to wait for the ringside doctor to come back after tending to Sean Salmon. Uh, also, Weber mentioned that Josh Punk Thompson was at ringside in support of Prangley. Uh, who he had wrestled with in college in Idaho, which was interesting. I, I knew that they'd both wrestled in college in Idaho, but just hadn't put two and two together that they would have been at the same college. So interesting there. Uh, Weber also playfully admonished Shamrock about keeping his comments on Thompson, quote, family friendly, after implying, again, that that he was gay during the Playboy Mansion show. And Shamrock, I kind of – it's hard to read. Like, he's not being very clear about whether or not he's messing around or not, but said he was trying to – do him a favor or something, something along those lines. So it was uh, not, you know, again, well, I, I'm they, not going to, and I don't going to play into Shamrock here, but I mean, it doesn't help that Josh Thompson's got the funky hairdo. And like, I don't know, like, I guess Josh Thompson did not want to build up to a feud, but like they just let it go. He just like says this thing. Josh Thompson's walking around with orange, pink hair. There's no confrontation. I don't know. It, the whole thing was very weird. I didn't like it. I did not like it at all. So, um, you know, obviously we're not saying if, if you dye your hair orange or pink or whatever that you're, you know, you're gay, but uh, it was just, he didn't do anything to kind of downplay it, you know, and other than, I don't even know if he went on the offensive about it saying, you know, it's not true. I, I don't know. I mean, he just, the only stuff that I really found was, uh, you know, basically he was looking into a lawsuit, you know, and that was, that was like, a you know, along the lines of slander or libel or whatever, but, uh, that was really about it. So uh, to me, again, I don't even really want to talk about it anymore because it's just a waste of time. There's just no, they weren't going to fight. So why are we doing this? You know? So, but anyways, this was a pretty solid entertaining fight until the very end. Both fighters scored some decent strikes to start things off in the opening frame. Uh, Nico seemed to be better with his hands, but Prangley got some really solid knees in from the clinch on two separate occasions, which got good reactions from the crowd, which I, I will say, you definitely could notice a difference in the crowd tonight. Like, I don't know if it was just being back in San Jose or if they did mic up the crowd, but man, whenever the a fighter got a good shot in, you know, you could hear them react. And then if they got, you know, got on the ground and nothing happening or they got clinched against the cage for too long, the, the crowd would let you know. But yeah, definitely you could hear them uh, back and forth in the first Nico drew some blood from the, from the, the nose of the South African good round. And you could honestly make a case for giving it to either fighter. It was a very exciting round. Uh, Prangley got a little mad at the end. Uh, I think he was he was landing some good shots and he was having some good offense. He threw this really cool, almost dismissive spinning back fist oh, yeah. toward the end. Yeah, it was almost like he was trying to just like you know uh, Nick Diaz has got the Stockton slap. This was like the South African backhand. You know, it was just like <laughs> so funny that he tried to do that and. Uh, you know, he was, he was mad. He was angry. Uh, but this was definitely an exciting round. And then you get the blood in there and it's like, Oh, this is a fight. Yeah, it was definitely a fight. Uh, and then in the second Prangley was looking a little tired to me early on, uh, but he would be the busier fighter. And he actually caught Vitaly, uh, with an inadvertent finger to the eye with two forty-six to go. And that would be it. And the, the wine fighter couldn't continue. And he was really, really angry walking around the cage cussing. I mean, Again, it leads me to believe that they did have more more mics uh, because you could clearly hear, you know, you could clearly hear what he was saying. So he was he was definitely frustrated, definitely angry, and, and he let everybody know it. 
Yeah, you can see Prangley kind of pawing at him right before the finger in the eye. You could almost see, oh, this is going to happen. It was a little Stipe Miocic-like. Um, he's just sort of getting his distance, getting his range. He's sticking the fingers out. And you can kind of tell when you start doing that that uh, something bad's going to happen. Yeah, and it definitely happened here. Uh, and this is where things got really weird. The, the ring announcer stated that according to the tournament rules, in the case of an accidental foul that ends the fight, the bout would be scored at that point as if it were a full fight. Uh, but the judges had apparently had it as a majority draw and they didn't announce, you know, which essentially means that each fighter got one and then one fighter or, or each fighter got uh, got the fight from one of the judges and the other judge scored it a draw. So it was a, a majority draw. So then the referee, Marco Rosales, gets to decide who he thought the winner was and he chose Brangley. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of an amazing way to end this fight. I mean, can you imagine being the ref and you're standing between yeah. these two fighters? And, and you're you like, to... you have to stand between them and they both know that you're the guy that picked which one, you know, which one of them won. So, yeah. I mean, you're going to be the guy who puts more money in their pocket. I mean, that's that's how significant or, it is. Or less money in their right. pocket. You know, and so kind of a very precarious position. Um, I didn't really like this way. I don't know of a better way to determine this when you're doing a tournament and then you have the ref or the judges who consider to draw. You could disqualify both of them, but then that kills the tournament. So you can't really do that. I don't know if you have these backups who can, who could sort of come in and take the role there, but it just felt unfair. Even if I did agree that Prangley might have been slightly ahead. Now, if you notice the ref, I don't know if the announcer knew or if the announcer was actually waiting for the ref to visually indicate who won. But the announcer is about to make the announcement and the ref raises Prankley's hand yeah. and yeah, takes I his hand off the other <laughs> Right, he takes his hand off the other guy. It was almost like he was like, I'm getting out of here. It was like, Earl Hebner, you're the winner. I'm getting out of here. And if you notice, yeah. he like, he like, yeah. exactly, you know, he kind of like, back, he, he didn't even look. The other way, you know, he, he, he just he only looked at Prangley and he looked like he was very awkward. So um, that was kind of interesting. Frank Shamrock on the announcing called it old school. Uh, it certainly was. Um, I was just waiting for Scott Coker to walk down the aisle, walk down the ramp, reverse the decision or, you know, tell him, hey. Yeah. Let's restart it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which wouldn't have been up to him. It would have been up to, up to the commission, but, um, Oh, come on, Phil. Yeah. If, if, uh, if Nico had won the fight, you know, what if he had won the fight and then couldn't continue? What do you, you know, what do you do then? Then I, I guess Hallman, I, yeah, no, yeah. Hallman would have stepped in. So even if, even if Vitaly had won, if he was hurt enough to where he couldn't continue, who's, who says that he would have been able to fight later on and then we would have had a reserve you know, a fighter in there, but Prangley definitely to put some work in during this bout and took some damage. So Santiago would clearly be the fresher fighter when these two met in the tournament fighter later in the night. Uh, but Vitaly would be back in strike force the following year. So we'll talk more about him then in the next bout, uh, Luke Stewart defeated Bryson, the kid Kamaka by KO at 19 seconds of the first round in a welterweight bout. At this point, Stewart was 4-0. He'd beaten Sam Liera at the Playboy Mansion Show via punches from Mount in the first round. The tattoo artist seemed primed for a big step up in competition. Uh, you know, Kamaka had a losing record. He was 8-13. and 13, um, And, you know, just he was more experienced for sure. But I, I don't know from a talent perspective if he was a big step up for, for Stewart. But from a 
inexperienced perspective for sure. Uh, but this one would go super quickly too. Kamaka would throw some heavy strikes to start off before Stewart grabbed a clinch and threw a couple knees up the middle. And kind of as Kamaka's like sliding down, maybe for a takedown, he catches a knee and 19 seconds later, he knocks out Kamaka, drops him face first to the mat. And, and you know, Kamaka was very frustrated, but he was a good sport about it. Now you, you'd kind of mentioned this earlier, Josh, that there was some questionable strikes. Well, Stewart hits a knee to the back of Kamaka's head as he lays on the mat. I mean, it was clearly illegal. I'm really surprised that they didn't make a bigger deal out of it. I mean, it had nothing to do with the end of the fight because he was, you know, the referee had already was in the process of stopping it and, you know, waving it off and, and, and Kamaka was already done. So it didn't end up affecting the fight itself but it was a pretty blatant illegal knee to the back of the head on the ground with the opponent face down. Never mind just, you know, he's got a hand touching the mat or whatever. I mean, he was flat out on the mat and he, uh, Stewart throws like a pride fighting style <laughs> knee to the, like a Mark Coleman style knee to the back of the head. And, and I mean, he, I really think he had time to stop himself and I'm not saying he did it on purpose in terms of he's trying to hurt him, but I, again, to me, it was that that was pretty unprofessional. I wasn't a big fan of that. Yeah, I don't think Frank Shamrock's going to be the guy who's going to draw attention to an illegal knee. I think that you know, <laughs> yeah, one uh, he, after the the uh, Henzo Gracie fight, yeah, probably not. He's oh, I didn't see it. Nothing, <laughs> nothing to see here. Yeah. Or as no, he right. said after that fight, he said, "I you know, I thought we we're here to fight." You know, that's, yeah. that was what he. But uh, you know, he's definitely old school. Um, yeah, it, you know, it would have been really bad to, I guess, disqualify him after this because he so clearly won. But some acknowledgement would have been nice. Uh, I like to call this fight, watch Cecil Peoples lay on Luke Stewart for an uncomfortably long time. I counted. <laughs> it was six seconds. Like, you need to go back and watch this. Um, so he jumped on... Um, Stewart and he just laid on him. It was crazy. Like you know, he's like full on big referee. You know, laid on top of him and Stewart's just like, okay, you can get up now. And then uh, he finally Stewart actually was the one who got up. Did you not notice this? Film? I didn't. I did not catch that. So no. <laughs> you do me a favor. You go watch that and our next show. I mean, it was hilarious. It's it's always funny when you know we see these these fighters. You know, and and they're they're engaging in combat. And then every now and then they'll like pop the referee in the mouth or something, or the referee will like shove them out of the way. And you're just like, damn, <laughs> these referees, they're also in shape or they're ready to go. Well, not all of them, but you know, certainly some of them are as well. And people's is definitely one of the more, um, you know, it doesn't look like it, but he's definitely one of the more athletic referees. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that, so Stewart would, would stay busy. He would fight again soon at Shamrock versus Lee. Would he face a, a bigger name fighter? We will find out. Kamaka would be one and done with strike force. He retired in 2017 after compiling a 13 and 21 record. All right. The next bout, Anthony a train Ruiz takes on Bobby Southworth and defeats him by TKO uh, from a doctor stoppage at 54 seconds of the second round, a light heavyweight bout. Southworth was eight and four at this point. He was riding a two fight win streak. But again, as we discussed earlier, really riding a, a run of bad luck. Uh, and, you know, he had had the, the cage door fly open and then the widely panned fight with Vernon Tiger White and then the Bill Mahood situation. So would he finally get a chance to show off his, his skill set? Uh, and then Ruiz had lost to Trevor Prangley at the Tank versus Buentello event, which we mentioned earlier. He had since won three in a row at California regional events, which included a win over Pride veteran Francisco Bueno. 
All right, pretty active first round. Southworth catches a kick from Ruiz early on, knocks A-Train down with a right hand. There'd be some nice groundwork, some clinching. Ruiz would land a nice elbow to the head later on in the round, but Southworth would eventually respond with a good takedown. Either fighter could have gotten the first, to be honest, but I, I think I would have given it to Bobby. Yeah, you know, Bobby was the aggressor. Uh, you know, he gets points, I think. It was a close round, uh, but he was definitely pushing the action. I I don't know. I think we're probably going to disagree on this, Phil, but, I mean, I'd like your thoughts. Um, you're definitely sort of more into the, you know, the, the granular technical, technical side of MMA, but I just... I have a hard time really getting into the Bobby Southworth fights. Now, I know he's had a little bit of uh, a run of bad luck, but there's something about his style that just doesn't really resonate with me. To me, he looks like a guy who's not enjoying himself in the cage. Like, he's good. He was good. He's, you know, he's very solid. Uh, He's technical. He's efficient. But I feel like he's the guy that, like, whose father forced him to, like, go into martial arts or something, and he just kind of stuck with it. And I sort of got that sense of this round that it's just he's very functional, but he didn't really possess any great X factor in the cage. And I and I don't know. Um, you know, I never watched Bobby Southworth and sort of feel like that dude is a major badass, you know, and I never want to, you know, encounter with him. I always just sort of feel like he's doing just enough to win. Does any of that make sense to you? Do you see what I'm saying about his fighting style? Yeah, I, I think that's pretty fair. I, you know, not one of my favorite fighters, not no memorable, you know, fights that I, that really jump out at me outside of the craziness that we've already discussed at length. But yeah, I, I you know, he wasn't, even though he was highly decorated, I, he wasn't especially flashy on the ground. He wasn't, you know, an, a fantastic striker. I mean, he was an experienced workmanlike fighter. He didn't have a huge it factor. You know, he wasn't full of charisma or anything like that. And he was very cerebral about the way it was a business to him. And mm-hmm. and he was there to make money. And, you know, we had our check out the archives. You can hear my, my interview with Southworth. But yeah, he doesn't ex- strike me as especially passionate about MMA. It was more, you know, I mean, he said it in his interview with me that he was really more about about jujitsu. But if he was going to make money, it was going to be an MMA. So to me, it was more about taking care of his family. And I don't think he was especially passionate about MMA. I, I just so I, I think that maybe that's what you're seeing. And and yeah, I mean, he didn't have a super, super remarkable career for, you know, having a great record or winning a ton of titles or anything like that. Um, you know, we've questioned the the decision to book him for the strike force light heavyweight title about to begin with, you know? Right. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, I, I can't disagree with you actually. So that's just, just the feeling I kind of got. It's just like, it's kind of a boring fight, even though I'm fully aware that this dude's, you know, a talented fighter. Yeah. Yeah. I, I again, I can't disagree. Uh, but in the, uh, in the second round, Ruiz tagged strike, uh, Southworth with some strikes and he actually cut him open and hurt him. Uh, spotting the resulting blood, the rest steps in and checks the cut and deems it too serious for Southworth to continue giving Ruiz the win. And on the replay, it showed an, kind of an accidental headbutt that might have started things off, maybe rung Southworth's bell a little bit. But Ruiz caught very, very fo- uh, impressive shots four in a row to the head right after that. I mean, he caught Southworth with those. And cl- Southworth was clearly in trouble. In fact, I got to give it to Southworth for having a good chin because – uh, man, one of those blows in parts, I think it was the third one. I thought he was done. And so you got to give it to Southworth for, for surviving that, but he had a very bad cut over his left eye and it was right over his eye, like, like, 
basically you could see where the doctor was treating him was underneath the eyebrow. I mean, it was, you know, it was pretty bad. So Ruiz was extremely excited um, about it, but, but very impressed, impressive showing for, for a train for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I almost feel like Ruiz was almost surprised that that he won. He was yeah, so he was really celebratory. <laughs> he was so excited, like he he threw his hand in the air and like pumped it, like he was saying yeah, like he was so enthusiastic. It was it was kind of cool. Just yeah. sort of the flip side, you know, he's he was very emotional. He really appreciated that victory. Yeah, and and ma- part of that was probably that he realized this this would naturally set up a title fight. Uh, between the two of them, which would happen. It took took place the following year uh, mm-hmm. when both would return to the hexagon. But, I, I, you know, I, I got to say, I, I just – I do not understand non-title fights. I don't yeah. get it. I mean, I know they use them in wrestling all the time to, mm-hmm. you know, make it seem like the champion's vulnerable and, and all that stuff. I mean, it's almost like clockwork that, you know, the Friday or the week before or the week of the pay-per-view event, the you know, the – the challenger is going to win a tag match, you know, a non-title tag match against the champion or, (laughs) you know, some sort of whatever. And I just, I don't get it. I mean, if you, to me, if you're the champion, you defend the belt every time you step into the cage, unless it's a fight outside your weight class, you know, that like, to me, I, I don't get it. Like, what is the point of that? So to me, how is Ruiz not the, the light heavyweight champion simply because, you know, okay, it wasn't set up for a five round fight. But this didn't go five rounds, so I, I, I don't get it. I, maybe you know more about that than I do. Maybe you have a different perspective, but I, I do not understand non-title fights in, in MMA. And thankfully, we don't really see them very often anymore. But to me, it's it's a waste. I, I just I don't get it. Yeah, I think that some of it might be just sort of Scott Coker wanting to do some things a little bit differently. But these, there's too much at stake to have non-title MMA fights. I mean, anything can happen. And uh, they put their lives on the line every time they compete. Uh, And even if it's just a serious injury, you know, it's just like, this guy should be the champion, right? But, but, you know, it's non-title. I I don't think you can make the case, especially with Strikeforce at this time, it wasn't as though the the roster was so deep that, that somehow this guy got a shot that, you know, he didn't deserve or that it was, you know, there were like 12 guys ahead of him or something. I mean, if you're going to have the fight and it's more exciting to watch title fights too. Absolutely. So it's very you know, bizarre. There's more at stake. Yeah. So, so I don't know, but that's yeah. what they did. All right. Well, in the next bout, uh, we had 170 pound bout. Uh, Lamont Davis would be taking on Brian Schwartz and beat him via unanimous decision. Schwartz, as we mentioned earlier, big local favorite. He got a big pop when he came out to the cage. Um, they said he was 18 and 0 in kickboxing. He had fought multiple times in K1. Uh, he was from nearby San Mateo, uh, and he had also been part of the touring U.S. national karate team. And Coker had. I, my guess is that he had to see Schwartz as a potential next Kung Lee, so to speak, judging by his background and his appeal as a fighter. The crowd was definitely into him, uh, and, and yeah, they were definitely up for this fight. The press release stated that Davis is, quote, also a strong stand-up fighter having competed in Chuck Norris's World Combat League, but it it is Davis's 12 bouts of MMA experience that could make Schwartz's transition a difficult difficult one, end quote. All right, so this is the fun with facts segment for this show. I cannot find any any MMA experience for Davis. In his pre-fight video interview, he didn't mention any previous bouts. Uh, just, 
I don't know where the 12 bouts came from. Probably comes from the same place where Caesar Gracie was 14 and 0 and in MMA <laughs> and Josh Thompson was 34 and 2 in MMA at one point. It's it basically they come from those same fun with facts uh, uh you know box basically. So That's just, uh that's who we need to get on the show. Like who? You know who was actually, you know, compiling the records for Strike Force at this time? Let's find this person. Yeah, I don't know. I, the, I mean, I don't think he was responsible for uh, putting the records on, but Mike Aframovitz was the director of communications, and today he's the uh, the director of communications. Or I don't know if that's his title, but basically he's the comms guy, the PR guy for Combate Americas, um, and and uh, he was basically my boss when I worked, uh, when I worked for strike force and he, you know, he wrote all the press releases and all that stuff. So he was involved in the process and he'd probably be the guy that would know. <laughs> so, um, you know, maybe, maybe we'll see if he wants to come on the show at some point, but, uh, well, well Mike Aframo had hired me, so I'm not going to accuse him of fudging these numbers here, Phil, but uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> same thing, same thing. I mean, we both worked for him. So yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, but maybe we can have Mike on at some point. Speaking of Combate Americas, did you see Alberto Del Rio? I did. As we as we record this episode, uh, Alberto Del Rio or Alberto El Patron, as he is known outside of WWE, had been has been officially charged with like kidnapping and sexual assault from a, in a some something that happened in May. Um, yeah. You know, he's innocent until proven guilty, but. He's facing a lot of time in prison and, you know, definitely can, I think I say definitely can safely say, cause God, God knows anything can happen, but I don't think we'll see him back in combate. I don't think we'll see him back in WWE. Uh, you know, he's 43 years old, so he's obviously getting up there as well, but you know, d- difficult times for him. And, and, you know, if he did the crime, he needs to do the time. No question about it, but, but big news you, for sure. Did you see when Crow Cop knocked him out? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I, I watched, I want to say I didn't watch that live because I never watched Pride Live, but I saw that event not too long after that. I had no idea. I knew who Dos Caras was, which is, that's that's his father. Uh, I knew who Dos Caras was because um, I knew that name from, from Lucha Libre. But yeah, that was a, I, well, it's kind of funny because he, you know, he wore, for those that don't know, um, Del Rio wore a mask. He was, you know, he was an <laughs> MMA fighter years ago and he wore a mask a luchador mask in the cage or sorry, in the pride ring, they let him wear the mask during the fight, which is just <laughs> insane. I mean, that is crazy, but he takes the, you know, the, the signature left, uh, high kick, the, yeah, the left, uh, high kick from, from Crow cop and gets knocked out. And and that's it. And Crow cop follows up with like a pretty brutal left hand with, uh, with, with Del Rio, uh, slumped against the, the, the ropes. And, but he ended up bleeding pretty badly from the kick and you can't see the blood because of the, because of the mask. So which kind of, you know, as a viewer kind of takes me out of it a little bit. I absolutely remember that. I, I've got the image in my head of him taking that head kick and, you know, he fought, uh, I believe it was last year. He fought Tito Ortiz for combate, or maybe that was early. They may have even been early this year and, uh, that was sad. Got, got choked out. Yeah. I got choked out in like three minutes or whatever. So, um, somehow he keeps making money. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I was never, never a guy that I was a fan of and, you know, from a professional perspective and obviously definitely not now from a personal perspective. So, um, but yeah, anyway, so let's get back to the fight. Uh, the MMA de- debut for both of them. Schwartz had a seven inch height advantage. He was six, three and Davis was five, eight. <laughs> uh, one of the things that bugged me about the commentary on this event was Weber said that, uh, that Davis had no, no chance 
which was really annoying to me because, you know, we all know everybody's got a chance. But Schwartz was a huge crowd favorite. He went for a guillotine early in the first round when Davis shot in for a takedown. And this is where it was similar to that triangle that we discussed earlier. He held on to it for a long time, despite clearly not having it locked in. And Schwartz tried some strikes, but Davis just wasn't having it. He clinched and shot in as much as he could and kind of basically tried to avoid, but was the busier fighter and, and got more done. So I gave the first round to Davis for sure. You know, Schwartz was only 6'3". I mean... Only 6'3"? Well, I mean, he looked like Sean Bradley in there. I mean, he looked so <laughs> tall. Tall and kind of gangly next, and gaunt, gaunt kind of looking, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, how tall is John Jones? John Jones is what, 6'2"? Uh, I mean, you know, I don't know how tall John Jones is. That's a good question. But, but you keep I mean, talking and I'll look it up. He, You know, he didn't look anything like John Jones, but it's just the fact that 5'8 versus 6'3, you know, it's such a big advantage. But, you know, he looked like a giant, but he also fought like a giant in the sense of he was clumsy in an MMA cage. He was a little bit awkward, uh, not really made for that style, I don't think. Um, obviously, he's decorated and other things, but uh, he's just lanky and skinny. And then you're going up against a, a shorter, more compact fighter. Uh, he just... He struggled, and uh, I just, I don't know. It was just very awkward. He looked very awkward in the cage to me. That's fair. And John Jones is 6'4", by the way. Yeah, and you don't think of John Jones as a giant, do you? No, no. I mean, he's obviously tall and lanky, but I think he's got, yeah, I mean, honestly, he's not built a ton more differently than Schwartz. He's just obviously in a higher weight class. Uh, He'd be up two weight classes from this, so he's obviously going to be thicker. But, but yeah, I you know, kind of the light heavyweight version of Schwartz, I think, physically. You have no idea how much I want to see John Jones take on Francis Nagal. Like, I just, I just, I mean, John Jones is, is a great fighter, but he spent, he's 6'4", and he spent his entire career in the light heavyweight division. Yeah. You're going to see him against some heavyweights. Yeah, Come well, we're, it sounds like we're going to, unless him and Israel uh, Adesanya, <laughs> unless this war of words that's going on as we record this, actually turns into something, but yeah. uh, yeah. Anyway. All right. So in the second round, there was more striking, but Schwartz wasn't able to take advantage of the, of, of what looked like an advantage on the feet. Davis even got some good strikes and you could see he was, you know, he was gaining more confidence as the fight went on. And after recovering from an accidental groin strike later in the round, Davis actually showboated a little bit and he just didn't seem to be really afraid of his more experienced opponent. Uh, and then in the final round, Davis was a lot looser on his feet using a striking to grab a guillotine of his own that Schwartz, uh, you could see him grimacing. He has teeth gritted and he was, he was struggling to get out of it. And I thought that it was uh, going to be a tap or nap situation for Schwartz, but to his credit, he weathered the storm eventually pulls out garners a, a huge roar from the crowd uh, he then tried to grab his own choke, but there was nothing there, and the fight ended with Schwartz trying to avoid a, a takedown. Kind of a letdown uh, for those expecting fireworks on the feet. I mean, obviously Lamont Davis was the sacrificial lamb uh, for you know for for Schwartz, and it just didn't work out. Solid unanimous decision victory for Davis, and uh, you know got to give it to Schwartz. He showed a lot of class in defeat, uh, but but yeah, not not a great fight, and definitely not something that belonged on the on the main card. Uh, but these two, they would actually rematch each other in Strikeforce the following year. So we'll discuss more uh, about both of them at that time. All right. Well, we're to the heavyweight title fight. Uh, Demolition Man Alistair Overeem defeats the headhunter Paul Buentello by TKO, which was actually came via tap out. It was really more of a, a, a he tapped out. So it's really more of a submission. But for whatever reason, it's called a TKO. 
uh, at 342 of the second round. This bout would mark the return of Alistair Overeem to the Strikeforce cage. You, you remember that he headlined the second-ever Strikeforce show, Revenge, against Vitor Belfort, winning a pretty lackluster decision. Uh, but this time now, he was a full-time heavyweight. And at 25-11, and 11, uh, he was not in a good spot in his career, actually. He'd lost four of his last five since the Belfort win, and he had beaten little-regarded Michael Knapp, but he had lost via stoppage to Minotaro Nogueira, Ricardo Arona and Shogun Hua in three straight pride events. And then it lost to Sergei Heritana via punches at a K1, uh, a K1 event in an, MM, in an MMA bout. So the ream needed a win very, very badly. Uh, you know, again, more of an example of Coker booking guys for title fights that just didn't really make sense. I mean, from a name value, sure. Uh, name value standpoint, sure. But, but having lost four or five, it, you know, kind of hard to give a guy like that a title shot. Buentello had certainly earned it. He was sitting at 23 and 90 and won 10 of his previous 11 fights with all of his wins coming due to strikes and the only loss coming to Andre Arlovsky in a UFC title fight. In fact, that was his only loss in the previous three years. So uh, Buentello, and especially being that he had might've been the only other <laughs> uh, strike force heavyweight <laughs> on the roster. Uh, you know, it, it definitely made sense to have Buentello be in there and, you know, he was adopted hometown of San Jose. So, Interesting. A couple weeks before the fight, Buentello gave an interview to MMAfighting.com, and in it, he said he'd been training at Greg Jackson Jackson's gym in Albuquerque, New Mexico, with Rashad Evans and Keith Jardine, and he talked about the uh, the the altitude training there and that sort of thing. Uh, he also mentioned that he'd never shot for a takedown in an MMA fight, and he wasn't about to start to now. Uh, the interview asked if the headhunter felt like he was underrated. He said no. Uh, since he was with Strikeforce, he wasn't fighting for, quote, the main show, end quote, at this point, intimating that he wasn't getting the attention because Strikeforce's audience was smaller, which, you know, which which obviously was true. Strikeforce was a newer promotion and all that. Uh, but me being a publicist, if Paul Buentello is my, my client, um, I would advise him to not, you know, be spouting that kind of message. It, it makes you look bad. It makes your your you know, the promotion that your home looked bad. I just was not a big fan of that. And this is where fighters not, you know, they don't generally work with publicists very much uh, outside of just getting set up. And I did it for five years with, with fighters. I actually tried to work with Paul in this, in this uh, capacity and it just didn't end up happening. But yeah, to me, it, it makes you look bad. It makes strike force look bad. Nobody looks good in a situation like that. Yeah, you got to act like what you're doing is the most important thing in the world. And it doesn't matter where you're fighting or what stage you're on. You've got to make the public believe that the stage you're fighting in is the most important stage for combat sports. And Absolutely. he didn't do that. And, and, you know, we saw later Gilbert Melendez and uh, Josh Thompson did a little bit of that when they were promoting their fight, putting over strike force. Uh, but, I mean, this is dumb. Uh you know, if you're in pro wrestling, you're you're jobbing for a year after this. <laughs> Seriously. Making, and obviously, we're going to find out. You know, um, this probably this comment probably did not help Paul and Scott Coker when it came to the negotiation table after yeah. this fight. Yeah, absolutely, and we'll we'll get into that a little bit. But uh, both fighters said they'd be looking for the knockout in their pre-fight video interviews. Um, but after a little bit of training on the feet, Alistair clinches and trips Buentello to the mat. Uh, Overeem lands some good blows from the top, drawing blood. And, and Buentello was, to his credit, was able to get up, but he ate some big knees to the head and the body. And first round was just all Overeem. Uh, Buentello just could not get one thing going. I mean, it was all demolition man for sure. Uh, Buentello knew that he had to make use of his time on the feet. And, and in the second round, he really began unloading. But 
didn't make a lot of, of, of meaningful contact and Overeem was looking fresh and confident and eventually goes for another takedown and the ref ends up standing them up and, and Overeem lands two really brutal knees to the, to the bread basket as Gorilla Monsoon would say and two right up the right up the gut you know and, and Buentello just drops and taps out and I mean this fight was all demolition man he came in and he just simply overwhelmed uh, Buentello and the San Jose favorite goes down into to defeat, but but a great showing for for the Ream for sure. Yeah, Gorilla Monsoon also would have said about Alistair Overeem, "You don't get a physique like that by hanging out at the bus stop." Um, <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> you remember that? Absolutely. Uh, uh, speaking of Alistair Overeem's physique, uh, he's starting to look bigger in this fight. I think this is one of the fights that we're transitioning into the new Alistair Overeem, the yep. more muscular, the bulkier. I think we talked about with Vitor Belfort how. How, you know, he's muscular, but how skinny he looked, like, you know, how young yeah. he looked at that sort yep. of different body. So he looks a lot bigger here. He's very impressive. Um, he was really tactical in this fight. Like, he, I think he had a plan, and his plan was do not let Buentello hit me in the face. So I'm going to do everything I can to close the distance, which is different because Alistair Overeem is a wicked kickboxer. So it was interesting that he took him to the ground and he just kind of tried to you know grind on him and uh he was he was cautious but he was very calculating and he just kind of overpowered him and he was just sort of on top of him being stronger than him you know Buentello I think I may have mentioned he was starting to grow on me but you know he's he just did not look next to Overeem it's like these guys should not be in the same cage he did not look uh, intimidating at all and you know you got that soft midsection you know it's one thing if you're not going to you know, decide you're going to use enhancements. Um, it's quite another to go in there looking soft. And uh, he, you know, you have a soft midsection, those knees are going to hurt a lot more. And I don't know, I guess I'm kind of frustrated with Bentuelo that he didn't do more with his, his outward physique being such a veteran. Yeah, you you really seem to have it in for, as as I, as much as I have it in for Bob Sapp. You seem to have it, <laughs> you seem to have it in for the headhunter uh, as as much because of his physique. But which again, as we've discussed, to me that's what made me a fan of his was one his uh, his just his desire to go all out for the knockout, and then two his everyman you know construction worker look. Like I I liked it because it just seemed like I could relate to him, you know, because I'm not. <laughs> I'm not, I don't, I look more like Buentello than I would like to look like Buentello with my shirt off. We'll put it that way. So, uh, but, but well, yeah, it's, but. it's, you know, it's not that, it's not like I'm judging him. Obviously uh, he's a, he's in good shape and a good fighter, but I just sort of feel like, you know, you got to put yourself in a be to be in a position to be successful. And, uh, you know, you're going up against Alarister over him. You know, the dude's going to be strong. He's tall. He's as tall as you, uh, I think you you know you got to suck it up. You're fighting for the championship. This is going to be the best camp of your life, and you're going to go in there so that Alistair doesn't think I've got you beat from the beginning. I, I, that's all I'm saying. Well, I mean, yeah. to be fair, he you know he went to Jackson's and and he said it was due to altitude training, which I I mean I is New Mexico known? I, that's more like Colorado, right? Like is New Mexico known for? I mean, I guess they have mountains there, right? So do they? Yeah. I I don't know, but. I don't know. He, if he's training for altitude, he's training for cardio. He's yeah. planning to be in the cage for a while. So, right. you know, it's a prospective five round title fight. So, I, I you Everybody know, everybody knows though. You don't know, hey, you beat Alistair over him. You just hit him on the button. So, yeah, I mean, I mean he's you know he's got a you know he's definitely a guy that can be knocked out. So, yeah. 
it seemed, but but that's why Alistair went for takedowns, you know, right. and and clearly Buentello trained getting back up because he was able to do it, you know, a couple, you know, both times that he got taken down. But yeah, just you know, I I just think Alistair was just a better fighter, you know. I just think bottom line, more well rounded. And, and just a better overall fighter. So, well, I mean, um, Alistair's still going today. He's yeah, a heavyweight one more contender, run, as he's calling it. One more run. And um, I mean, I just this guy's got so much experience. I mean, this guy's probably fearless when he walks into the cage because he's he's made that walk so many times in MMA, in K one. I mean, he's he's sort of the you know he's not going to be remembered as the legend of the heavyweight division, but I mean, he's definitely one of the best. Uh, combat sports athletes of all time i think at least in terms of his longevity he, he's absolutely one of one of my favorite you know one of my favorites for sure just because of all the fights he's done over the years all the entertaining bouts and he's been in some stinkers for sure but um i would love for him to get get the ufc belt because then you've got a guy that's got the k1 you know one k1 he won a pride uh grand prix belt if i remember correctly you know the strike force heavyweight title i mean this this guy and then to get the UFC belt, I mean, you could outside of Bellator, you could say he's got, you know, all the really major, all the re- really major belts. And and I think that's, I mean, he's he's a he's a Hall of Famer for sure, anyways. But uh, I mean, just one of the one of the greats for sure. And and just, you know, I, I'm reading reading a little bit more on him now. Former Strikeforce heavyweight champion, Dream heavyweight champion, which Dream was kind of the replacement for Pride. At one point, K1 World Grand Prix champion, one of only two fighters to hold world titles in both MMA and K and K1 kickboxing at the same time. You know, beat Fabricio Verdun, Mark Hunt, Vitor Belfort, Andre Arlovsky, Junior Dos Santos, Frank Mir, Brock Lesnar. I mean, just you know, one of the greatest careers, uh, definitely in in uh, in in heavyweight history. So you know, he's somebody that uh, I really like. I know there's been a lot of you know, he, he did fail a drug test at one point, and there's been a lot of a uh, lot of questions about, you know, testosterone and steroids and, you know, all kinds of stuff um, that there's been a lot of things about questions about his size and obviously, you know, all of that. So fair enough. But but I, I still think he's somebody you got to give a lot of respect to and for him to be doing this. And he seems to be one of the genuine good guys. I mean, no other than, you know, the questions about maybe some some steroid usage or whatever you know, no outside the cage issues. And the, you know, he beat Walt Harris as we record this earlier this year in, in Harris's first fight after his stepdaughter was murdered. And, you know, Alistair was, had so much respect for Harris and, you know, after beating him, you know, is getting down crouch next to him and, and giving him respect and all that stuff. And was just such a class act after that. And so, you know, I, I you know, obviously I'm a fan of the old school. So I, I love seeing a guy like him still fighting at a high level and being on the cusp of a, potential championship shot. And, and I would love to see him get that. It's just kind of the, the Rocky fan in me, you know, I would, I would love to see that happen, but, uh, but yeah. Uh, but despite winning the belt, telling Frank Shamrock in the cage, he was quote here to stay, uh, in strike force. He would not be seen in strike force again for almost three more years. So somehow he kept the title during that time. <laughs> I mean, come on, like never, you know, like we will see in pro wrestling. Sometimes we're like the 30 day, uh, you know, defense rule that we right. see, I mean, come on, you know, but, and obviously MMA fighters, if they're, he's like the fabulous moolah. I mean, sure. He kept, he kept <laughs> sure. that belt no matter what. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, I don't, 
somehow he kept the title during that time. Like the heavy heavyweight division was never one of focus for Scott Coker and Strike Force. It's just, I mean, point blank. That's just the bottom line. It was never, you know, they were really more lightweight, you know, welterweight, uh, middleweight. That was really more what they were about. And then eventually, definitely got more attention on the the light heavyweight division. But you know, middleweight welterweight lightweight that's really where it was at that was their bread and butter their sweet spot heavyweight was never an area of focus it, you know it's i don't want to get too deep in the weeds but it's it, heavyweights i mean man even at that time you could say the the ufc heavyweight division you have a glorified light heavyweight in randy the natural couture who's their heavyweight champion i mean you got arlovsky and and mir and uh, Sylvia kind of doing a dance of those three kind of trading the title around. I mean, it was not a very deep division, even for, uh, for, for the UFC, you know, it, it's in going back into boxing and, and all that, it's harder for guy, the more weight you carry, it's harder to, to have good cardio. And so I think a lot of times you end up with slow plotting decision affairs where guys aren't taking a lot of risks. And, and so you see a lot of decisions in the heavyweight division at times. And, so I, I think it's hard to showcase that showcase that division sometimes. And, and, you know, again, it was not a spotlight one for Coker and strike force. And so as a result, you see over keeping a belt for three, almost three years that he doesn't defend. So kind of crazy, uh, but he would be back. So we'll talk more about him, but it apparently will be a while before we do. So, <laughs> um, but this would be it for the headhunter and strike force. And this gets very, very interesting. Uh, he would move on to affliction after this winning two straight, there before some real weirdness sets in. In September of 2009, it was announced that Buentello had been released by Strike Force, despite not having fought for the promotion in almost two years. Uh, and again, he had been competing for for Affliction. I don't know what the situation was there. As I've said before, I've tried to reach out to Paul and try to get him on the show, and he just has never responded. But uh, you know, you, I assume you want, that he was. You want me to do it? I'm sure he likes me after listening to the podcast. Yeah, yeah. If you got a relationship <laughs> with him, feel free. But, <laughs> Uh, he's never, I I've called him, I've texted him, I've emailed him. He's never responded. So I, I, you know, he just not interested, I guess, but, uh, you know, maybe he was signed to both strike force and affliction Coker's, you know, known for being a very fighter friendly, uh, you know, promoter. And so maybe he allowed him to fight in affliction while he was still under contract with strike force. But for whatever reason, he was still technically under contract. They release him. Uh, but it was not an amicable parting of the ways at all. According to a sure dog article, Scott Coker said, quote, we, and now this, this is not, let me, let me clarify. This is not Coker saying this now, as we're talking about this in 2007, this is in September of 2009 that he says this, but quote, we offered Paul a six fight contract. Or I'm sorry, a six figure contract to fight Fedor, but he turned it down. His decision is understandable considering Fedor's level of skill, but at the same time, Paul didn't really fit into our plans. He's been a solid journeyman fighter, and we wish him the best of luck in his future endeavors. End quote. End quote. Harsh. Yeah. Seriously. Uh, yeah. I and and you had mentioned earlier that maybe you know you shouldn't be trashing the promotion. Uh, I don't know if that had anything to do with this. I highly doubt that Scott Coker would re remember an article from two years before. Uh, yeah. You know, and as part of this, but pretty salty i mean coker very nice guy but but man he i guess he can be pretty salty when he wants to be and this was not a, a positive parting of the ways for uh for for buentello and, and scott coker for sure yeah i mean the line his decision is understandable considering fedor's level of skill <laughs> i mean that's an man, insult these are, that's these are fighters that's shade i don't know what the kids call it today but man that was he was he was <laughs> 
dropping I'd bombs, f- throwing some shade. Yeah. I'd fight Fedor for six figures. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially yeah. now. You know? If I had health insurance, I might. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's just, you know, I, I to be fair, Buentello disputed Coker's version of the events, uh, to, uh, um, Sherdog's credit. They reached out to Buentello to get his response to what Coker said. And he disputed it saying, quote, to say, I turned down Fedor because of his skill level is a slap in the face and quote, it is meant, it is interesting note there. He didn't say that he turned Fedor down. Um, he didn't dispute that he turned Fedor down. He just said to, to say that I turned him down because of his skill level is a slap in the face. But if he got offered a six figure contract to fight Fedor, well then, you know, obviously the money was good for that time. So if he did turn it down, you know why? And it wasn't due to skill level. Why would he turn it down? So I, I don't understand that. Maybe, maybe it was 100,000 and Fedor is getting a million. Uh, maybe, like, but nope. I still, I still take a hundred thousand. I don't care yeah. what Fedor is getting. You know, if I get that, that money and I get a chance to beat the best heavyweight in the world. Yeah. I'm t- I'm doing that. Uh, if I'm Paul Buentello, not if I'm me. Uh, but but regardless, either way, this would be it for Buentello and Strikeforce. He would return to the UFC eventually for an unsuccessful run. That was actually after this part, you know, this 2009 parting of the ways with Strikeforce that he was, it said in the article, he was negotiating his return to the UFC. He does. He loses both his fights there before kind of heading back to the, you know, the, the tour or the circuit. Uh, of other MMA promotions. He would lose his last fight in 2016, ending his career with a 35 and 17 record. You know, regardless of, of anything, I, I ton of respect for the headhunter. He definitely made his mark on the sport of MMA. And, you know, when you have two losses in the space of three years with, you know, uh, what, 10 other wins, I mean, and, and those only two losses come in heavyweight title fights. I mean, you're, you're, you know, you're one of the, you're one of the best, you're one of the, one of the guys up there. So, uh, you know, gatekeeper or, or journeyman, you know, he ends up being, I guess, a journeyman, but definitely a guy who made his mark. So a lot of respect to, to Paul Buentello. So we have no idea what Paul Buentello is doing today. Yeah, actually, I, I, I actually do know what he's doing. Um, he is involved last I checked, I, I can't say this for certain, you know, as of this moment, but I think as we were kind of getting ready to get the show going, um, at the, you know, the, the podcast at the very beginning, uh, I believe he works in construction if I remember correctly. So, um, yeah, I'm actually looking him up on, I'm actually looking him up on LinkedIn cause we are connected on LinkedIn. According to LinkedIn, uh, he is a project superintendent for dome construction. Uh, he's been with them since July of 2018. So as we, as, as we speak, yeah, he's been involved in, uh, and then before that he was with Cody Brock commercial builders. Uh, and then he was a superintendent for a, a builder's company as well. So yeah, he's been involved in, uh, oh, pro heavyweight fighter. Okay. I thought it said weightlifter. I'm like, what? No, he wasn't. Uh, so yeah, so he's basically since, uh, he's been involved in construction for since about 2007, it looks like. And, uh, and then he's been doing that full time since leaving MMA. So got to give, uh, got to give it up to him, but yeah, it looks like he's still in the Bay area. And, uh, and he's still doing, uh, still doing construction work at this point. So there you go. All right. Well, uh, if Paul, if you ever do listen to this, you are welcome to come on the show. Just message me on LinkedIn or text me back or (laughs) call me or, or email me. All right. Before the next fight, Gilbert Melendez and Josh Thompson come into the cage. You mentioned, mentioned this a few minutes ago, Josh, they announced their long awaited strike force title fight. It's going to take place on March 29th, 2008. Uh, interesting kind of the way that they announced this Gilbert looked like, I, 
I don't know. How do you describe what Gilbert was wearing? Like it was just like a like a plaid button up, but he did not look like a fighter. Like he looked like a he looked like a construction worker to me, actually. That's really like I Tim the Toolman Taylor kind of came to mind when I saw how he was dressed. And meanwhile, Josh looked like a fighter. He's got like, you know, the crazy dyed hair. He's got like a tap out shirt on and and he looked like a fighter. Gilbert looked like he'd just gotten off work and, you know, headed over from the construction site so but um, Gil, let's be real Gil, gilbert looked like he was hanging out at the corner liquor store you know yeah I, I guess ordering yeah. with his buddies i mean he was keeping it real he had a nice little flannel pendleton on yeah um he looked like a normal dude you know yeah, he looked very normal he looked very part, normal part of his appeal which was i'm a badass guy who uh you know can do badass things in this cage you know and, and so yeah, and then of course Josh looked like a fighter. Yeah, with his or- his orange and pink hair. No. Yeah, all he just needed was like an affliction T-shirt on, you know, or an extreme <laughs> couture T-shirt on that you know were so popular with skulls and lots of stuff going on. But uh, Jerry Millen is actually the guy that makes the announcement. Uh, I I actually dug into this a little bit uh, because I am not a Jerry Millen fan. He was uh, not a not a good guy to uh, tomorrow Ronaldo, and and so I'm you know I'm on the morrow <laughs> the morrow side. Not a big fan of Jerry Millen. He was a longtime Pride executive. Uh, ends up working for M1. Actually, as it stands today, he is listed on LinkedIn as uh, Fedor's manager and consultant at this point. Uh, supposedly, he's been doing that for the last five years, but not a big fan of his. I, I thought he was loud and abrasive, and his fake hair and his fake teeth. And uh, you know, he really him and Dana White hated each other. And when man, that was an interesting feud back in the day when they were. You know, you want you want Fedor. Fedor doesn't want to come to you, and Dana trying to disparage Fedor and saying he's not as good as you know they're making him out to be, and all that stuff. But for some reason, Jerry Millen was here and making this announcement, even though I it, his resume doesn't show that he ever worked for Strikeforce. Obviously, he's got some relationship with uh, with Scott Coker and and all that stuff. But yeah, not not really a big fan of his. Um, but he's the guy making the announcement. And also, I got to point out, holding the mic like a complete amateur. You don't hold the mic around the head of the mic and hold it up to your mouth like a like an old school '90s rapper. Like that's just not, you know, like <laughs> it's just not very professional. So um, Jerry Millen probably higher on my list than Bob Sapp as far as guys that I just don't really have a, a high opinion of, a positive opinion of an MMA. So, but we don't like Jerry Millen and we don't like JBL. They're harassing Mauro Ronello. No, yeah, I, 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 yeah. All right, I'll put JBL. You know, I have a higher opinion of JBL just because of his entertaining matches with Eddie Guerrero and all that stuff. But <laughs> yeah, Millen, you know, and at least JBL is a legit tough guy. Millen, I, I, yeah, anyways. Well, I thought Josh gave a, a good promo. Um, you know, he was sticking up for strike, strike Force. They asked, you know, Millen asked him a question and, you know, he said he's not going to talk shit. Yeah, he's not, yeah, not going to talk a bunch of smack and, yeah. Yeah, everyone who does gets beat up. So yeah, that was I thought that was a nice, honest promo. And uh, Melendez too gave him respect, saying Josh is tough. They're both tough. Um, you know, the great fighters are in strike force. They're going to go out. Um, it, I thought it was pretty good. You know, I wouldn't mind seeing a little contract signing or a little table or <laughs> little something. T- somebody get power bombed through a table or something. <laughs> At least yeah. a stare down. You know, but uh, I, I thought this was decent. It was a good buildup. Yeah, it was okay, and and obviously they're going to bring it. So, uh, and I can't wait to talk about that fight. That's going to be, that's going to be fun. 
All right, so then we're finally to the uh, the middleweight Grand Prix uh, final. George Santiago defeats Trevor Prangley by TKO at 231 of the first round. As a quick reminder, Santiago was coming off the, the brutal flying knee uh, KO of Sean Salmon, while Prangley had gotten a, a two-round decision win over Falonico Vitale. Uh, extended feeling out process to start things off with Prangley getting some solid strikes in. Santiago responds with a pretty good overhand right, followed by a leg kick that, that seemed to stagger Prangley. And then a short time later, we had pretty much a replay of the Overeem Buentello ending as Santiago landed a solid straight right, followed by two brutal knees to the body. And that was all she wrote for Prangley. Uh, simply put, like this was Santiago's night. I mean, his striking was on point. He barely even got tested. I mean, it just, it was a big, big win for Santiago and, you could see, uh, you know, Bigfoot was really excited and just a, you know, a great night for Santiago in his career. No, no doubt about it. And, you know, despite a tough night, Prangley would have a, a chance for redemption at the second Playboy Mansion show. So we'll talk more about the South African in the future and a huge win for Santiago, who, of course, came away uh, with a, a very nice title belt. Very, very nice belt. It was a lot better looking belt than the the heavyweight title that they gave to uh to Overeem, in my opinion, but for some reason he would not be back in strike force. Um, he he would face Yuki Sasaki. Both both uh, both Santiago and Sean Salmon would actually both face Yuki Sasaki, who did not get into this tournament, you know, because of the MRI situation, um, which was interesting. But that would take place in Sengoku in Japan, which was again kind of one of one of the replacement promotions for Pride. Uh, Santiago would have a long, successful run in Sengoku. He won, won both the middleweight turn, uh, title and a middleweight tournament there. He would eventually return to the UFC, losing his last three bouts there. Uh, and then he retired in 2012 with a 25-12 record. But big showing for, for George Santiago, no, no doubt about it. It was an incredible knee. I mean, the body doesn't move. You know, uh, people want to hit the head. But if you can take someone out with the body, there's nothing you can do. You can have a tough chin. You might be able to shake off a strong blow. You're mentally strong. But you get the wind knocked out of you, you're done. You're collapsed. I don't know if you ever saw Bernard Hopkins and uh, Oscar De La Hoya. Um, this was Oscar sort of toward the end of his career. But uh, Bernard Hopkins hit him with a body shot. Like, he made him look like a child. You know, he winced. He just, he's practically crying in the in the ring. Uh, I remember... I remember the image of him on, on his knees, you know, holding his, his gut and grimacing. I remember that. I didn't remember it was the bird. It was, uh, the executioner that did that, but I remember that. Yeah. It's, I mean, you know, well, liver shots, you know, it's, it's, it, you get hit with a, a good liver shot and that's, that's it. And if you get hit with a good, you know, get the, the wind knocked out of you, I've had the wind knocked out of me for sure. And that you feel like you're going to die. So yeah. 100%. Nothing else, nothing matters. Not no. even embarrassing. It's just getting air. <laughs> the only thing that matters is getting air. So, yeah. but that was it. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm excited to say that we will be talking with, with George Santiago for next week's episode. Uh, we're going to discuss the ins and outs of this tournament and getting prepped for it and the, the fights themselves. And I'm looking forward to that, especially coming off two very notable wins here. Uh, so I'm excited. I'm going to ask him if he still has the belt. Uh, maybe you can send us a picture of the belt or, or something along those lines. But, uh, yeah, we'll be interviewing Santiago pretty quick here, and, and I'm, I'm excited about that. All right, we're to the main event, 185-pound middleweight uh, fight between Kung Lee and Sammy the Squeeze Morgan. Uh, lead wins by TKO at 158 of the third round. Uh, Sammy Morgan would present another veteran test for Lee. He was a UFC veteran. Uh, he was 18-8, and eight, was coming off the decision loss to Forrest Pets at UFC uh, Fight Night 6. Before we get into the fight, I just want to say great mohawk, great hair. I, I was really excited about this fight based off that. 
Well, that was uh, that was the only great thing about Morgan for this fight, 100%. Uh, Lee was 4-0, was seen as Strikeforce's first completely homegrown star. Would MMA superstar stardom follow? This would be another you know, rung on the ladder to climb. Time would tell. Uh, the stars also seem to be aligning for a Kung Lee-Frank Shamrock showdown for the title, as the two had discussed on the air at the Playboy Mansion show. So we would see how this would go. Uh, Lee showed some solid strikes, of course, early on before stunning Morgan with a right hand. Uh, very, very good right hand. He got a couple good hip takedowns in there as well. One really smooth one. Uh, Morgan, very aggressive, swung really loud, wildly, and Lee was just basically slipping and, you know, moving in, moving around any strikes, picking him apart, mixing in uh, takedowns with those those punches and kicks, and Morgan was getting very tired. First round was definitely all Kung Lee uh, for sure. Morgan, was, he's just so wild with his strikes. I mean, honestly, he looked pretty amateur to me. Nothing was coming close to connecting. Lee remained calm. I remember Shamrock saying on commentary that, you know, the dangerous thing about Morgan was he was so unpredictable, which was a nice way of saying that he's just wing, winging and swinging and, and you know, nothing was really coming close. Very similar to the Frickland fight in my mind. Lee clearly outclassed his opponent and, and – uh, Morgan was just getting more and more tired and Lee got a really nice Ronda Rousey esque judo hip throw it was just beautiful. And he did some really nice ground positioning advancing, uh, later on the mat in the round and, and just second round, definitely all, all Kung Lee as well. I'm going to take a little bit of a different tact here. Um, you know, he was all those things you said, he, he, you know, Morgan was very unrefined in his pro in, in his approach, but I think he, he did some things that may have developed a little bit of a blueprint for how you stress and test Kung Lee later. He sort of fought a fight. It reminds me of how I play my son in chess. I, I, you know, he's really technical and strategic and I just start taking pieces because if I can do things that are unorthodox, maybe he'll forget about that and I may be able to slip in there and put him in check or something because I'm doing things that are just so like counter to how you would actually win a chess game. And I think that in this context, Morgan was just trying to land a punch. He was just trying to hurt Kung. I mean, we know what happens when you stand in front of Kung Lee. I mean, you, you get your ass kicked. And not only that, you get beat up. You get, like, systematically dismantled. And so I feel like Morgan was trying, to, and through his desperation, trying to test Kung Lee's chin and trying to get something in there because he's just not going to win a fight on the ground. Uh, Kung Lee's a good wrestler. He's not going to win any kind of stand-up fight. I also felt Kung got a little tired in this fight. So I think that, you know, when we look ahead to the Mandalay Silva fight or the Scott Smith fight, that we sort of see a little bit of that in this fight. How did you, how do you beat Kung Lee? Well, you got to take him deep and you've got to shake him up and you got to hit him. You got to rough, rough him up a little bit. And the thing is, Kung had such a lack of experience in the MMA cage that, you know, he hadn't really developed yet how to, how to shake that stuff off. A lot of times, the first time they get hit, they're done. And so if I'm going to say anything good about Morgan, it was that he definitely got Kung tired. And did you feel that Kung was a little more muscular in this fight? I felt like he looked really big. Yeah, I, he looked thicker to me. I think that he looked thicker to me. Um, I also agree with you that um, 
that he that Lee got more tired. I, you know, he was definitely more tired in the third round than I thought it would. But I think that's because he was doing so much. I mean, he was doing takedowns. He was doing his kicks. He was doing his strikes. I mean, he was doing a lot. So, yeah, he looked a little thicker to me. So maybe that, you know, maybe his cardio wasn't as great. I'm going to f- firmly disagree with you on Morgan. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I, I just I thought he looked like an amateur. I was not a fan of, of, of his performance here at all. Uh, in fact, I was mildly surprised that Morgan even came out for the final for the final round. He was clearly so, so tired. Of course, he still had a puncher's chance. But it was it was Lee that knocked him down early in the third round, and after picking Morgan apart more on the feet, Lee landed what looked like a liver shot to me. Morgan immediately drops to his knees, and the the Vietnamese superstar lands a a really hard left hand, a big TKO win for for Kung, and and Morgan was mercifully mercifully this was over. I love the loud Kung Lee chants that you could hear. Yeah, Kung Lee was such a superstar in this in this match. Um, and it goes to what I've been saying, sort of the theme of this. And we're about, this is all going to peak uh, once he he fights Frank Shamrock. But you know, he, he just had mainstream star written all over him. Just when you're looking at it from a, you know, you're, you're a publicist. Uh, you look at it from a marketing perspective. There's no one else like him. That's number one. There's just, there's no other fighter who you can say, oh, he kind of reminds me of Kung Lee. Okay. So he's very unique. Um, so I, I was just sort of impressed with, with him, the, the, the tremendous offense that he is throwing, okay? The downside is, and we talked about it, he did look a little bit exposed, at least from my perspective, a little bit of that dirty boxing. And, you know, Kung had some trouble finishing. And so even though it was entirely a lopsided match, we sort of saw, you know, maybe somebody with a little more experience would have been able to finish Morgan a little bit, Um and, and, and we didn't we didn't really see that, you know. Um, and we, eventually we did, but you know he struggled. He struggled to do it. So Kung grew a little bit in this fight as well. And I just think if you're Morgan, you know, you're, you're not going to beat Kung in any other way than hope you get lucky. And I think that's what he was trying to do. And uh, you know, Kung was laying on top of him, you know, for part of it, just sort of grinding it out, and it was just not a not a good night. Um, I will say this, and you know, Kung Lee is one of my favorite MMA fighters of all time. I really like him. Obviously, I love his style. I wish I were his promoter. I probably would have done everything I can to turn him into a big Hollywood movie star. But I mean, if Dave Batista can get roles in Hollywood, Kung Lee should have gotten better ones than he did. Uh, but I did not like the punch. I don't know if you noticed this, if you had any thoughts on this, but, uh, you know, Morgan was out and he punched him when he was down. And I felt like that was a cheap shot and unnecessary. I think Kong was probably just frustrated because he had to work so hard to finish him. But uh, he, he literally, you know, at least he didn't, it wasn't a knee, but he did punch him right in the head when Morgan was clearly just defenseless. Did you notice that? No, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I saw the punch and it was a brutal yeah. punch, but the referee yeah. hadn't jumped in yet. Uh, I, I didn't think it was, and and being that's a liver shot, a guy's not knocked out. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I get what you're saying, but that you could say that about a million other fights then. Cause, cause they oftentimes will come in with a punch after a guy's clearly done. Um, I have more respect for guys that don't take it, but, but yeah, I, I get what you're saying, but I, yeah, to me, it it wasn't anything that stood out to me. And I, I was just surprised sportsmanship. I was just surprised Kong because Kong's such a, gentleman and i was yeah, sort of like very sportsman like you know but but you're right the last thing you want is 
the guy to stand up and come back and win the fight. So you yeah. got to finish it. You so go till the ref point. tells you to stop, unless you yeah. just absolutely know it's done. He needed uh, Cecil Peoples in there to jump. Yeah, all over. yeah, he would have been all over that. <laughs> um, but you know, this was the longest that he had fought. Uh, he, you know, he'd been in the third round in the in the Franklin fight, but that that fight did not have a lot of the groundwork that this one did. So I think this was the most he was tested from a cardio standpoint. And um, you know, after the fight, the fight, Frank Shamrock comes in the cage. He interviews Kung and. They discuss fighting each other ne- next, and Frank accepted Kung's challenge. And again, I can't wait to talk about that fight. That's a fantastic fight. I'm looking forward to uh, to getting into that one, and that's that's going to be you know that's going to be a great one too. And it's one of the next we'll be covering that soon. And as I've as I've mentioned, Kung has agreed to come on the show, and we're going to talk about that fight with him. But yeah, it was uh, you know kind of interesting to hear the post fight interviewer essentially talking to the victor of the main event about hey we're we're next you know kind mm-hmm. of kind of a Kind of an interesting thing. Yeah, it was very Terry Funk, Ric Flair, no doubt. You know, yeah. trying to get. It. <laughs> um, I did not like Kung Lee's promo though. Uh, you know, he's like, "Hey, Frank, let's me and you do this in the Shark Tank. We'll make some money. We'll put on a good show." And I'm just like, "That's not what I want. I, I don't want to watch so you can so I can make money for Kung Lee and Frank Shamrock. Like, I want to watch because you guys hate each other." So I thought, obviously, Kung had just been in a fight. So he's not necessarily thinking about promoting the fight. He's probably still recuperating. But I thought they missed an opportunity to really stage a grudge angle here. Um, obviously, they don't need to be faking this stuff or anything or scripting it. Like, I don't know, was it was it Stefan Bonner who was doing that stuff? You remember? Yeah, they were like, yeah the you know, Justin McCauley thing with the Tito Ortiz fight where you yeah. brought in the guy in the mat. I was actually there live that night. <laughs> Oh, you were. <laughs> yeah, I was actually there. I was like, what is, what is this? Yeah, I got yeah. you. I, I don't want that, but um, I just sort of felt like Kung was such so nice and Shamrock's over there just being like super charismatic as he always is. So it just sort of felt like these guys are going to fight. Okay, it should be kind of good. Obviously, they would build up to it much better down the road, but I would have preferred a more definitive challenge. Even Frank Shamrock said, well, if that's your challenge, I'll accept, you know, and it's yeah. like, you shouldn't have to say if that's your challenge. <laughs> no, um, I, I agree. I agree. Uh-huh. And it's kind of, you know, these guys aren't trained on the mic like pro wrestlers are. Yeah. Um, even, But even the Josh Thompson Gilbert thing, I mean, kind of similar to me. Like, you don't have to necessarily, you don't even have to hate each other. Say, look, it's what, what Shamrock said was, you know, this, basically this house is not big enough for the two of us. Like, that's essentially, that's all you got to do is, hey, the... Uh, Josh Thompson, Gilbert Melendez, this is the battle of SF and San Jose. I mean, that's, that's always going on for those that are in the Bay area, but, uh, and then, you know, Santa battle of San Jose between Frank and Kung. And they said that, but all you got to say is, Hey, Frank got a lot of respect for you, but you know, there's, there can only be one. I want that belt. I want, you know, I want the fame. I want, I want, this is my town and I'm going to show you. And that's all you got to do respectfully. So, yeah, I think I agree. I think they could have done a lot better on both of those. You don't have to get in there and talk a bunch of smack. Um, you can, and that helps solve the fight. But if you guys generally respect each other and all that, then just get in there and say, hey, this is a battle, you know, battle for supremacy here. And I think I'm better than you, but I have a ton of respect for you and I'm going to put in the work and get ready. You know, I think that's all you got to do. So, 
I got you, but but Lee would be back soon. Morgan would actually headline a Strike Force event against Dwayne Bang Ludwig the following year in 2008. So we'll be discussing him more not too far into the future. Uh, but let's wrap this up. Uh, the for the salaries, Santiago got 15k total uh, and a nice new belt for winning the tournament. Pringley got 30,000. Overeem got 30,000. Buentello got 20,000. Kung Lee got 50,000 for the main event slot. Here's the crazy thing. Brian Schwartz got $30,000, which tied in with Overeem and Prangley for second most on this card. Uh, I guess it pays off to be the big local kickboxing star. Uh, but, yeah, I, I'll be curious to see what he gets the next time he fights <laughs> uh, in that rematch. But, but yeah, big big payday for Brian Schwartz for sure. Overall, I'm sure they wanted a refund on that money. I, seriously. <laughs> uh, overall, a solid step forward for Strike Force with four men enter. I think they rebounded nicely from the Playboy Mansion show. show. They pulled off a unique four-man tournament, got a new heavyweight champ, set the stage for the the you know the dream lightweight fight between Gilbert Melendez and uh, Josh Thompson. And then, you know, we got Frank and Kung Lee slated, uh, you know, to, to be on the horizon pretty quick here. And then on top of all that, you got a potential middleweight contender in George Santiago. Kind of unfortunate that, um, you know, you, you end up with what looks like great stuff, uh, you know, as far as you got a new heavyweight champion is very marketable. And then we don't see him for almost three years. And then again, Santiago never came back to strike force. So, Kind of, you know, it looks great on paper, but a couple of those didn't pan out. But I think probably the more important ones were the Melendez Thompson and Shamrock Lee fights, and we did get to see those. So, Josh, uh, so we wrap things up here. What did you think? Well, I did want to note that uh, Figure Four Weekly had the gate at 387,687. And we think about the UFC show, which was around this time. I think you said it was about 2.1 million. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you get a sense there of sort of the difference in terms of the the amount of money these promotions are, are drawing. But again, Strike Force is the story of the undercard and uh, or sorry, the underdog. And, you know, they would eventually get so big that UFC would would purchase them. And, and you know, it was just this Strike Force to me was the best opportunity for anybody to compete with the UFC, even though Bellator is on TV and, and, um, has been successful. It's only because they, they've got a lot of money. And I think Viacom owns a little bit of them, but you know, as far as strike force and an organic promotion, um, you really see them growing here and this show, I wasn't a big fan of the four man tournament. I just think that it's sort of unfair. Cause you know, we saw that, um, you know, it was one guy has, a little bit easier than the other guy and then that guy wins the whole thing and so but i guess that's part of the the mystique the thrill the energy um i don't know if you could say it's a fair fight if somebody had a harder fight earlier than you did but um it is what it is the key takeaways from this card though are you got the kung lee frank shamrock promotion out of it and you also had the josh thompson uh, gilbert melendez so you had two really marquee fights that were set up from this show. So I think that's the big thing. It's a takeaway. You're always building to the next thing, and they built to this. Um, I did love Kung Lee in the main event. I wonder why you don't put your heavyweight championship in the main event. To me, Good that question. Was, you know, that's sort of interesting. Uh, obviously, Kung's the young rising star, and at this point, they're firmly behind him. So they are definitely trying to put him in that main event slot. But... You know, your average person, you just put heavyweight on the marquee. They, they like that because they think they're going to see see knockout. So, and Alistair did have a name. So, to me, that's sort of interesting that 
that was the order of the show. But, you know, they paying Kung Lee a lot. So that's what it had to be. But um, I, a much better show than the Playboy Mansion, whereas the Playboy Mansion show is very forgettable. This show is uh, pivotal, pivotal. You know, it's it's we have a heavyweight champion. We've got the four man tournament and then we've got these two other marquee matches that are that are coming out of the show and then good production value. They needed a good show and I think they came through. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. Uh, I think this was a, a great step forward for them. And, uh, you know, as far I agree, I don't know how you don't put your title fight on last, but probably going based on local appeal. And, you know, obviously that's going to be Kung over Paul Buentello. So um, that that's probably the thinking there. But with that, uh, we're going to go ahead and wrap things up. We appreciate you tuning in and listening in. Again, you can reach me at philitinsidethehexagon.com. Would love to have your feedback. Uh, you can also uh, find us on Twitter uh, at inside the, the at inside the hexagon pod or at hexagon pod, and then on Instagram at inside the hexagon pod for sure. Again, would love to get you to rate and review the show. It helps others find. Our podcast, we appreciate all the support that we're getting. Help us spread the word, tell others about it. Uh, but again, I, right now, I would love to hear feedback, direct feedback from some of our listeners on what we can do to make the show better, make it, you know, do you want us to make it shorter? Do you want us, what, what, what can we do to improve the entertainment value? Um, so please do reach out and let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, but with that, we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sun, sunset. Josh, I appreciate your time. Thanks for being on the show with me today. Well, you know, Phil, um, I haven't shared this with you, but, you know, the feedback I've gotten from our audience is they want more pro wrestling references. So I'm going to bring that to you in future episodes. I somehow doubt that. I just it's, I it's very it's very extensive, you know, okay. and, and I need to feed the beast and uh, res <laughs> respond to my audience. OK, your audience. OK, fantastic. <laughs> Right, well, uh, you, I, do you want me to show you how to cut a promo right now, Phil? Uh, no, don't don't uh, make dude, me I'll, do it. I'll, I will out promo you <laughs> any day of the week. See, this is how you build up a feud right here. This is how this is how you do it. Challenge extended, challenge accepted. We'll have to do a promo off at some point. But, I, dude, I've got a I've got a uh, a replica of the big gold belt, and I and I will freely admit that sometimes I put that over my shoulder and cut a promo in the mirror. So <laughs> I, I, I I've got some practice in. So I, I'm happy to I'm happy to I'm happy to bring. Well, bring my big guns to the table. You know, if our, if our audience drops, you know, that's the, we're just going to gimmick we're, that. We're going to gimmick yeah. a feud at the top of the show. It's, there you go. There it's you easy. go. <laughs> oh, we already got feuds going with Bob Sapp and now apparently Jerry Millen. So, you know, there's, there's, there's some feuds brewing, brewing. We and, just don't know and, if they'll go anywhere. And you're trying to get me into a pose off contest with Paul Buentella. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. 100%. All right. But again, listeners, thank you for joining us for today's show. We appreciate it. Hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy and we will see you soon. Ready to up your game and learn more about the thrilling world of sports betting? Introducing Double Down with Breslow, the ultimate podcast about the business of sports gambling. Join me, James Breslow, and a long list of expert guests as we dive into the art and science of the sports betting industry. Evolving regulations, technology enhancements, and the meteoric rise in the number of players makes this sector the fastest growing and most intriguing in the world. Unlock the business secrets from many of the industry's most recognizable C-suite executives, including famous 
business odds makers and influencers. Every episode of Double Down with Breslow is packed with insider tips, deeply skilled analysis, and in-depth discussions. Don't miss out on the ultimate resource for mastering the business of sports betting. Listen to Double Down with Breslow on the Evergreen Podcast Network or wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Double Down with Breslow, the business of sports betting podcast.